Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's most cost-effective electronic flight bag for iPhone and iPad. Get a free one-month trial today at ozrunways.com and by JetRide Australia. Be a top gun for the day in a Soviet-era L39 jet. Visit jetride.com.au slash pcdu for the fastest ride in the country. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 95 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. On a freezing cold, windy night here in Melbourne, Australia, I'm Steve Vischer, and uh, doing no flying of balloons, at least right now, is Grant McHeron. How are you, mate? Hey, not bad, buddy. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. I tell you what, uh, we started about the last four or five episodes talking about your balloon exploit, so I think we should do that right now. You know, I see some really weird things when I drive trains around the railways, but I don't think I've ever seen a balloon tethered to a railway station. Can you elaborate? Well, in my defence, it wasn't actually tethered to the station building itself. It was tethered to the bull bar of a four-wheel drive on the grounds in front of the station. Okay, that's your story and you're sticking to it, huh? Damn straight. Okay, and how many hours did we log in the book? In the tether, it was one hour uh, in rather challenging conditions. And uh, the day before that morning, I flew for 1.3. So, yeah, that was a rather fun flight with a very fast landing. <laughs> there you go. Only Grant McCarran could turn the uh, sport of ballooning into a blood sport. Oh, no, there was no blood. No, 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 no. Even the sheep barely looked up that were in the other corner of the paddock. Oh dear, oh dear. Well, that's, that's good that you're getting some time up, uh, time in the logbook. That's excellent. Yeah, it's great fun, mate. I'm absolutely loving it. Looking forward to getting some more, but uh, time and weather are probably against me for this weekend. Uh, and I think one of the other guys wants to steal the balloon away and use it. So, Salavi, I'll uh, try and get some more in in November and see what I can do. Well, I'll tell you what, somebody who's been wrecking up uh, heaps of time in aircraft, some in his own look, logbook, and uh, I'll tell you what, a lot of time in airliners. We welcome back from his seemingly six-month trip to the US, and he's here in the studio, AT. See Ben, how are you, Ben? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, unfortunately, there's not very much time at the pointy end of the airplanes. It was all uh, most of it down the back in uh, <laughs> ah. a couple of extremely long trans packs. So, uh, are we are we there yet? Got uh, used a lot in my mind on the way over and back from the states because uh, the old 14-hour trip to LAX is a very long time in <laughs> well, the back. I can assure you, mate. The older you get, the longer it gets. It seems. And if I recall correctly, Steve was starting to go. Are we there yet? Oh, how long has it got to go by? About the time we were just coming up on Fiji. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think I was saying that before we got to the airport, actually. <laughs> we were on the boarding tube. <laughs> now, Ben, how long were you gone for? It seemed like you were gone for months. Uh, no, I was overseas for six weeks. Yes. Only six weeks? You packed yes. a lot in. Yeah, no, I packed a lot in, so when you've got to make a 14-hour trip to get over there, you sort of make the most of it while you're gone. Absolutely. Now, of course, you went to uh, to Oshkosh, which is uh, part of the trip, and we've got some interviews coming up a bit later in the show that you recorded there, but uh, you made some other great aviation-related visits while you were there and even visited another member of our team. Certainly did. Uh, Mr. Vanderhoof decided to uh, come up and visit me while I was in New York and uh, oh. took the train up from Pennsylvania, and, uh, and uh, he treated me to uh, a visit of the Intrepid Museum on the aircraft carrier, and we even got to go in the Concorde and all sorts, so it was uh, an awesome day. Fantastic. Now, I'll tell you what, uh, anybody who reads uh, the Flying with Fish blog will have noted that uh, Steve Frischling uh, talked up David Vanderhoof and his lovely wife Michelle's wonderful hospitality recently in a, uh, a wonderful article. And, uh, of course, David's a really good friend of ours uh, here at the show, and we know that uh, what a great guy he is. But now, Ben, that you've met him in person, he's pretty tall, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, compared to uh, when I'm only uh, five foot seven, just... <laughs> 
<laughs> he's 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 not a very short short blank, no. <laughs> so now now I actually understand the jokes about you and David getting jammed into Rob's mini last year. Yeah, <laughs> the clown car. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what. Yeah, Rob Rob Mark makes a lot of uh, remarks about my size and getting in and out of his clown car. But uh, as I as I said in an outtake on the airplane geeks, I think any American who drives a car that small. Well, that's just plain un-American. <laughs> that, that's right, yes. Well, I've, yeah. I've been in the back of that car. I think we had Baz in the front. I was squeezed in the back, and we that was when we were driving over to Chicago Executive for the flight with Rob in the Cirrus over to Rockford for the start of the Bonanzas to Oshkosh last year. And, uh, yeah, that was fun squeezing myself into it. But uh, uh, did I hear right that David actually wound up in the back, or was he squeezed into the front? You couldn't fit David in the back. He's taller than me. That would be a lot of contortion if yeah. he did wind up in the back, that's for sure. Yeah, you know you know what Rob should do? He should sell that micro car and buy some sort of huge five-litre Chevy. <laughs> Depends who's paying for the fuel, mate. But anyway, Ben, uh, well, tell us about the Intrepid Museum for a start. Just showing up at an aircraft carrier that's, you know, been turned into a museum, that sort of blows your mind to start with when that's you realise that this thing actually used to be an aircraft carrier that was operational. Um, and then the collection of uh, things that they got on there, well, includes a lot of stuff that wouldn't actually get off an aircraft carrier like an SR-71. But, well, that's a bit odd. <laughs> but, uh, no, they're, they're just a great collection. And uh, to have somebody like David Van who show you around, it's yeah, he knows pretty much what every aircraft is. And its history. That's and right. its history. David would probably know who put each individual bolt into that aircraft carrier, knowing <laughs> David. <laughs> well, pe- people that were following me on Twitter would see the, um, the entertainment that I invented after I uh, actually met him in person. When uh, every aviation museum I went to there after that, I actually found some obscure weird angle to take an air- a photo of an aircraft and then I would tweet it with his name in it and uh, have, you know, the Stump David hashtag going. And yeah. uh, no, he, he got me every time. Yeah, nobody can stump <laughs> David, that's for sure. We're well, hoping to have David on the show tonight, but at the time we're recording this, it's about five o'clock in the morning over there in Philadelphia. So uh, we'll grab uh, David on the show uh, back before the end of this year. So, uh, Ben, uh, from there uh, across to Oshkosh, now Grant and I have had the pleasure of being there, walking up and walking through the gate there. Initial impressions? Oh, I didn't get to arrive in as much style as Grant did. But I drove past between going to the uh, the shed where you picked up your your media accreditation to getting back around to to Camp Shoulder because you had to do a bit of a, a block there, and I drove past more aircraft there than I've ever seen at an Australian airport, I think. Yeah, uh, and that was just one small part of it. And that, pretty much, yeah, that was just, that was like one tiny corner of the North Forty, and that was about it. It's quite impressive uh, if you go from the uh, south end of uh, the very south end of the campsite. I didn't get down that far, but I walked from ultralights up through to uh, Warbirds and uh, then around to where I was at North 40. Uh, Then I took the bus around to the other side of that runway uh, to the terminals. But it's just impressive as that there's so many people, so many aircraft and so much fun. Absolutely. And I mean... Full kudos to uh, to the pink shirts over there. They, the controllers over there, how they do what they do is is mind-blowing. As of Saturday morning, because they, up, they update it once a night, um, they have a little movement sheet that they stick on the back window of the office of the tower there, and uh, it was up to uh, 13,500 and change. <laughs> and uh, you've you got to remember this airport is only open from uh, 6 in the morning till midday, and then they close for the air show till about 5 or 6 in the afternoon, and then it's only yep. open till 8 at night. So... Um, She's beat that Sydney Tower. <laughs> <laughs> did you get to? Did you get much of a chance to uh, talk to any of the air traffic controllers while you were there? Yeah, I got to talk to a, to a couple of them. Um, pretty much just to say, yeah, well done. You guys do a good job. And I actually had the pleasure of uh, um, meeting uh, David Phil over there. Shout out to him. He uh, actually 
gave me a ride in his uh, Arrow, Arrow 4. We went just up the road to Appleton and back just to go in and out on the Oshkosh procedures and, yeah, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, you uh, managed to resurrect the now famous PCDU tent, the, the little small tent that we put there at uh, Firebase. Ah, the Taj Maru. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the Taj Mahal tent, yes. The Taj Mahal tent lives again. Last year, they were giving us a lot of hassle because they said it was so huge and there were only four guys in it. But what they didn't realize that we, we had a lot of our gear in there as well and four rather large mattresses. So there wasn't a lot of room to move. Well, <laughs> Mike Miley was upset because it was bigger than his RV, if that's possible. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, Home Sweet Road didn't make it this year. Oh, so really? That was, that was a, bit, yes, a bit of a maintenance snafu. Um, oh, no. Follow the tweets on that one. You'll see. You'll see what happened uh, to the uh, to the generator on uh, Home Sweet Road, which uh, kind of killed it coming up. Um, but no, the Taj Mahal tent was uh, there again and uh, came in good handy. And uh, I was sort of getting swamped by all the space, so we uh, decided to uh, share the love a bit. And uh, we had a couple other guys move in there, and uh, Dave Allen was uh, bunking with me for a little bit and with all his gear, so yeah. it uh, served its purpose well. Oh, fantastic. Now, um, now, of course, last year we left Oshkosh and left the tent. We're not sure where it ended up, but uh, where, did it, where did it end up this time? Who's got it now? Uh, it's, no, it's back in the uh, the safe custody of Adam Fast, who's uh, promised to bring it back again. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, uh, no, it, it, it will ride again next year, and uh, whoever wants to stay in it, it uh, will be there at the, uh, the podcaster's uh, little campsite there that uh, I think the South Africans are going to have something to worry about in about five years' time with the amount of podcasters that are going into that space. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're yeah. we're going to rival the South African uh, crew there, I think. Many Aussies, many Kiwis there. I noticed a number of interviews that you've got here are from uh, the Kiwi contingent, but uh, did you manage to bump into many Aussies there? Um, didn't bump into that many Aussies there. I mean, I know there was a few there because there was a few people from work were there. Um, one of the other controllers, one of the, the sim techs was there as well. So uh, there were people there, but no, I mean, I think they said they had 560,000 odd people there over the over the weeks. So yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of hard to bump into anybody there. <laughs> oh, um, no, you bump into a lot of people. It's just you don't really know them at first. That, that, that's exactly right, yeah. It's... Um, kind of insane that you sort of get to go and hang out with 500,000 uh, of your best friends that you didn't ever need, know you had because they're all, uh, all av geeks like yourself. Now you got to meet all the other famous aviation podcasters, Steve Tupper and Jack Hodson and all those people. Yeah, no, I got to uh, meet all the voices in my head finally. So uh, yeah, the, you know, got to meet uh, Dave Allen and Steve Tupper and, and uh, a lot of other people. And then there's the uh, the people that aren't the voices in your head. But uh, I mean, uh, Larry Overstreet, who's not a podcaster. But has um, been on some podcasts. Quite, quite possibly the biggest fanboy that's there, but... Uh, <laughs> He's he's such a such a great guy, and he actually pretty much organises that whole campsite that all the podcasters yep. use. And I mean, you know, it's just great that he's sort of put it out there and said, "Look, guys, you know, I'm only up the road," and and that way he's he's actually able to to run up the road you know, the two weeks beforehand and get the spot and yep. everything like that. And you, know, you get to meet all these people. Um, just you, you lose track of how many people you're meeting. <laughs> I'm sure Dave Allen and, and John Conway and those guys, they they were there because, you know, there was evidence of them of them being there, but I don't think I saw them stop moving. Now, we've got to get onto these interviews that you've recorded for us in a minute there, Ben, but uh, speaking of Dave Allen, of course, from otherpeoplesairplanes.com, the fantastic video series there, I managed to see a video clip with you and it made you look a little bit stunned like a rabbit in the headlights there. It was, uh, it was, it was a good interview, though. No, I've got a head for radio. I'm not used to this video. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> So now I'm quite comfortable on the other end of a microphone. Uh, being having this camera in my face, I'm just sort of like, uh, okay. And uh, that that was at the end of the uh, the first day. So uh, 
my head was uh, well and truly exploded by that point. I looked at the map after the day and I sort of went, oh, okay, so I've seen this and I've seen this and I've seen And then I went, oh, right. <laughs> you, you sort of realise you've spent a whole entire day and you've seen virtually nothing of the place. Oh, yeah. 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 I yeah. reckon it would take three or four visits before you'd see the whole thing. Exactly. And, and even then you'd miss the bits that you'd seen before because they've all changed and there's new people there. And absolutely, absolutely. Okay, mate, well, we're going to get into these uh, interviews that you've got here. You've got five interviews, uh, all from the Kiwi contingent and, uh, well, except for one, which, of course, is our friends at Gibbs Aero, although it's got our friend Matthew Hessel there who I think is losing his Kiwi accent, actually, but uh, we'll have a listen to that. And uh, following that, we'll be meeting our new Queensland correspondent, somebody who, if you've listened to the show, from the very early days you'll uh, probably remember but for now let's get a taste of Air Venture 2012 This is ATC Ben and I'm over at Oshkosh 2012 and I'm speaking today with a couple of guys who have made the big arduous journey across the Pacific like myself uh, talking to uh, Malcolm Seville from Classic Aviation Designs and uh, Dick Cybrandy from uh, Aurora and gentlemen welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much Ben. Thank you. Uh, Malcolm you're working on a, a cup project can you explain us a bit about that? Yes I am. Ben, what we are doing here is we've taken the venerable Piper Cub, the 1943 Piper Cub, that is a steel, traditionally steel construction, and we've turned it into a complete timber construction build, and it's, and it's also in a kit set format. Now why we did that is that we are hoping to build a relationship with schools and academies and whatnot so that we can actually put this project into place so over a three-year period the school can actually build a complete Piper Cub using wooden technology, teaching about 12 students at a time and how to build and how to gain experience in the aviation industry. And along the way there is lesson plans, there is uh, videos to watch, so it's very structured. So when they come out the end, they'll have a very good head start on most other students going into the aviation. Excellent. So it's, it's actually a whole comprehensive program for the teachers and everything yes, it to, is. to pick up from. Yes, it has full, our program starts from zero. So we screen the children, so when they come through, and I use the word children loosely, it can be used in adult education as well, but we're predominantly looking at, and we already have one academy running in the North Island of New Zealand now, where we have them, the students apply to come onto the scheme, and we had in that one school we had 20 applications of students that were fit the criteria that could apply. Out of that 20 we interviewed, we checked them out and they all met the criteria. So then we had the arduous task of, of actually eliminating, which is very, very hard because we could only run one program at this school. So we eliminated it down to 12 students. And then from there they have to sign a contract. And on that contract it states they'll maintain their grades at the school, they will maintain their time they are at the school, so no truancy. And this is in the other classes as well as the Aviation Academy class. And they are going to commit for the, for the full three years of the course. And you find that the students that do take it up are, are very keen and it, and, it, and it enhances what, what their, their school work and things like that? Very, very keen and, and such that they are, at the end of the day we actually have to push them out the door to leave the school. And on Saturdays when they come in and do admin work on the academy books and whatnot, we have students turning up on a Saturday wanting to build because they rather than just sit around at home playing on Xboxes or just having nothing much to do. Which is yeah, something different for the, uh, the current generation, I think. It is. And that's what our program is all about, is actually introducing new 
new pilots into our ageing pilot fleet that we have now. If you, if you look around Oshkosh here you, and you ask some questions of who are pilots, people put their hand up and say who are pilots, you'll be struggling to see young people coming through. Yes, there is Young Eagle programs and all those sort of ones, but our demographic age of these pilots is 40 plus. Yeah. We're all getting grey-headed and, and getting old and, and unless we can start pushing these skills onto these new ones and inciting these new children coming through the fold and as I said in my PowerPoint presentation, you know, unless we can get the kids to put down their Xbox controllers, leave the confinements of their room and actually get the physical feel of the wind in their face, we won't win. Yeah. Uh, moving into the future, you're looking at bringing this to, to the US obviously, that's that's why you're over here and also to places like Australia, a bit closer to home. And Most definitely. Definitely Australia, we, we have an international academy that um, we are going to be promoting through this program through and definitely Australia is our first target and we'll be looking at um, offering it to schools. now. Be assured, we're not here to take over. All we're doing is offering a, a cheap build aircraft that will fit within the budget of the current school or academic structure. The aircraft kit complete with everything you need to get it to fly is around about $40,000. Now for a lot of schools they might put their hands up and say $40,000, but if you actually look at it over a three year project, that's not too bad. And that supplies you with all the materials. So you don't have to go out sourcing these parts and whatnot with these technology teachers. With the videos that come along, it actually helps the technology teachers to be able to present that to the class. So if you had an existing program, we can either fit in with just a project, you can build it and, and promote it how you want, or we can offer all the educational tools to go along with it. Just one other further point too is that we offer a, a three-way program for this to work. One is that a person will decide that we want to buy and build a Cub Flyer, which is the name of our aircraft, CA-18 Cub Flyer. And he will nominate a school and go into that school and say, look, we ha I have the aircraft, I will mentor you, this is the, what we want to do. We supply them with the tutorial videos. The second way is that if he just wants to build it and himself in his own garage, he can nominate a school to us and we'll supply them with a full scratch build plans and we'll help them along the way to actually build it from scratch. Okay. Or thirdly, they can just buy the kit set, and this is more importantly what we're promoting here at Oscrush, is just to buy the kit set outright and build it themselves, and we'll use all our funds that we earn from the kit set sales and we put it back out into our existing education programs and the future ones we're advertising. Excellent. And Dick, the uh, turbine-powered microlight helicopter. Yes, well in, in New Zealand we have the uh, the microlight category which is a maximum takeoff weight of 544 kilos. Um, we've designed this though with the uh, with a design rating of 600 kgs. Uh, this we believe was with the as it is in Australia the microlight category is up to 600 kgs. We're anticipating that New Zealand will follow suit very shortly. Um, it's been a long process in terms of we've done three prototypes in the last couple of years where we've done all our flight testing on and we're now at the point where we've uh, improved significantly the original design in terms of using all composite carbon construction and uh, it was a very unique FADEC controller for the engine which is a full FADEC with an automatic manual override. Uh, this is the first time it's probably been done on, to this extent on one of these engines. So that's what we're aiming for. Uh, predominantly our, our target market is the pilot training market where 
Robinson R22s have been the dominant force to date and uh, we feel we just need to give them another option in terms of turbine training which a lot of pilots go through to larger aircraft and commercial helicopters and uh, so that gives them another option to uh, train a craft that's got a little, very competitive running costs and is uh, a very inherently a very safe aircraft compared to the, the usual go-to, which is normally sort of a 206 size size aircraft to, to do your turbine training on. Yes, yes, and you get to, then you get turbine training from day one on your uh, on your training, on your training yeah. as opposed to having to transition later on. It's like then the move towards the, the turbine and the, the carbon fibre and all the composites that keeps obviously helps to keep the weight right down. Yes, it does. Yeah, power to weight that you you be struggling to beat the turbine because it's uh, it's 160 horsepower. Uh, we're currently using around 110 to 115 horsepower for two guys and full fuel to fly. In a hot conditions, you'll probably get up to maybe 125, 130 horsepower. So we've still got plenty of horsepower in reserve. The engine has been, we set it up on a dyno, so we track all the performance curves and then the ECU is uh, programmed to mimic that exact, those exact curves. So that's where we're heading to, yeah. We're advertising it here in Oshkosh at uh, fully built up ready to fly at 190,000 US, but we also do have a kit set option as well. Kit set option here, we're, we are going to need to have uh, a distributor or distributors in various countries in order to go off of that. So in terms of parts backup and supply and, and just general support. Excellent. And in terms of speed and range, we're looking at cruise, cruise speed and, and range of the aircraft. Yeah, the uh, V&E is 90 knots with a cruise speed of uh, between 80 and 85 knots. We've got 100 litres of fuel on board. So that will give us just over two hours of endurance. The cabin comes complete with uh, full instrumentation in terms of the fully built up one with a, with a glass cockpit, full avionics, transponder, transceiver, ELT. It's also been designed to the FAR 27 specification, which is the uh, commercial helicopter specs. So all the uh, the load points and load ratings on the cabin structure and engine structure, etc., are all to a, a rated hard point, the same as the FAR 27. Which gives you the option then of, of, of certifying it. Yeah, later and down that's, the track. that's part of our uh, future plans is to go down that certification route. But that will uh, involve a little bit of destructive testing and yeah. basically wrecking a few bits to prove it works. Yeah, that's right, yeah. But that's, ex- but that's the expensive part of it. That is the expensive part of it, but it's one of those things that has to be done uh, to get that certification. But that will, that will, but that will then open up, uh, uh, we feel, a, a larger market still in terms of commercial use um, with a military police work, survey work, that sort of stuff. Excellent. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Ben. Cheers. CTC Ben at Oshkosh 2012, and I'm with uh, Peter Maloney from Composite Helicopter, uh, another great Kiwi company uh, flying the flag over here in the States, and uh, the world's first all-composite helicopter. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And what can you tell us about uh, your your all-composite helicopter? Well, we've now achieved uh, numerous successes. We've successfully completed the platform. We've done about 105 hours of semi-tethered and skip testing. We uh, now produce 105 knots of thrust out of the ducted fan, and that's that's also monitored in the cockpit during the uh, flying manoeuvres, so we can, again, measure how much uh, tail rotor authority we have remaining. And uh, we're now established into the flying program, so we are thrilled. 
Excellent. And uh, where do you see the market for, for, your, for your helicopter once it's been through all its testing and things like that? Uh, awesome. We, that, and to make it very short and simple, it is going to be absolutely brilliant. We have interest from all over the world and uh, the, the, the more people get to understand the significance of the composite airframe and the fact that we can over-engineer our running gear and that produces a 5,000 hour TBO and we have no corrosion issues on the airframe. Uh, carbon fiber main rotor blades, which again are on condition, and the tail rotor blades, carbon fiber on condition. The direct operating cost of the helicopter is going to be very low. We are specifically marketing the helicopter as a kit for the amateur build, um, for private and um, personal type use. Um, we have designed the aircraft at Part 27 for certification, and we do intend to go down that avenue probably within the, the next nine months of the stock program. Excellent, excellent. You said it's powered by a ducted fan? No, the tail rotor is a ducted fan. Okay. The engine of choice is the Rolls-Royce 250 series, and the prototype is a 320 horsepower uh, Rolls-Royce 250 T63-700. The airframe is designed for a 450 horsepower engine and structurally for VNE of 160 knots. That fuselage as it stands now without any changes is capable of a gross weight of 4,000 pounds. It gives the builder a lot of flexibility and we've designed want to take power from the That's correct. We have designed the aircraft to be future proof. So in other words, if an owner starts with a small engine, he can then re-engine with more power. Uh, alternatively, he can increase his gross weight, um, and uh, we have a few other uh, developments further down the track. Excellent. And uh, as far as the uh, the cost sort of market that you're looking at, uh, if an owner was to purchase the kit, he uh, can get the aircraft into the air for three hundred ninety-five thousand dollars US full park. It really depends on how they customise the aircraft and also their choice of engine. As an example, we spent $35,000 US for a zero-timed T63-700. You will probably spend around $75,000 for a, a T63-720, which is a 420 horsepower engine. Where can we find more information about all this on the internet? Yes, we have a new website up, www.comsethelicopter.com and uh, there's a lot of information there and if they've got any questions, they just email us. Excellent. Thank you for your time, Peter. Uh, thank you very much. This is ATC Ben, and I'm talking to Sean Mitchell from Kiwi Propellers, and we're standing in front of a uh, very gorgeous-looking composite propeller. And uh, Sean, welcome to the show. Yeah, no, thanks. And um, what can you tell us about this wonderful propeller we're standing in front of? This is a propeller that we've designed in conjunction with John McGuinness from Team Synergy Aircraft, and it really is taking a whole new look at how propellers need to work with aircraft. John and ourselves, my brother Derek and I, we really have a vision about where aviation needs to go in the future. You know, we've been stuck in aviation of aircraft that are 50, 65 years old. We hop out of our really nice cars that cost us 50, 60,000 dollars and we hop into this piece of junk that rattles and shakes, burns a whole heap of gas and doesn't go that fast. So, you know, we need to really take a re new look at what aviation needs to bring to us. We need comfortable aircraft that are fast to fly, that use very little fuel, to really make it accessible for everyone to use, and it needs to be a price that everyone can afford. So our role in that with Kiwi Propellers is, as we went through all of those aspects, you need the plane, you need the right engine, and then you need the propeller to propulse it. Now, 
most aircraft and propeller manufacturers, uh, propeller manufacturers, you know, they design a propeller that's going to fit on 10 or 20 different aircraft because the tooling is quite expensive to build these car propellers. And one of the hurdles, that's one of the big hurdles we had to overcome, and we've managed to do that. We can now manufacture a propeller and make tooling in just four hours for that propeller. So that has opened up the ability for us to design a propeller for a specific aircraft. And that's what you really need to do if you're going to get into the efficiency ranges that we're at. Now, most aircraft propellers out there currently only use the tip of the, aircraft, the tip of the propeller. We're using the entire blade of the propeller using Reynolds numbers and get, achieving constant Reynolds numbers over a million. And that's really the secret to getting that efficiency. But to do that, it has to be designed to the motor, the airframe and the speed that, that aircraft's going to fly in. And that's really the secret that John McGuinness has developed. Add that to the manufacturing hurdle that we've overcome by being able to do tooling in just four hours. And someone can come along with us to the airplane and say, look, you know, this is my airplane. I fly it at 200 miles per hour TAS. And uh, I'm spinning my propeller 27 RPM. And uh, that's where I'm going at. And we can say, okay, we need to design this propeller for that, and we can manufacture. Now, of course, there's going to be more than one person with that set up in their airplane. So, you know, it's not all lost. It's not a, a one propeller for one plane aspect. But by having that tooling in the way we do, you know, we can actually achieve that for people for their individual And you're talking about um, the, the efficiency gains. Um, just off air, we were saying that, uh, you are saying that the uh, propellers that we use these days are in about the 50-60% range in efficiency yep. and your propellers are well up, well up in the 90s. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's because, once again, they're using the, the, just the tip. And if we look around at all the other propellers on the aircraft around here, you can see how wide the root of the propeller is here going down to the very fine tip. Now, that's really a Piper Cub Lancia type of analogy. The centre of the propeller is spinning much slower than the outer tips of the propeller. So, you know, to create those constant realms numbers. You need a button cup wing at the root and you need a lance ear here for at the tip. And, and that's really the simple way of looking at what we're doing and, and how we're achieving it. And, and like you said, you know, most propellers are only 50 in the 50 to 65% efficiency range. We're currently hitting 93% efficiency with this prototype propeller that has been designed for the Vans RV7 or, or RV6, either of those two aircraft running a Lycoming 360 engine and producing around about 180 horsepower top speed of 200 mile an hour. So that's where this propeller's been pitched at. That's the efficiency we're getting out of that. And because of that, the main reason is that we're using the entire blade and that corkscrew type effect. So you imagine a corkscrew pulling you through the air as opposed to a, a big fan blowing in and doing it very inefficiently. Excellent. And uh, eventually, obviously, you're going to look at redoing these for everything, so 172s and absolutely 182s and all that sort of thing? Absolutely, right through the whole range. And really, we're, we're, we're waiting for people, we're not waiting, we're going out and talking to people in the aviation industry, and that's one of the reasons why we're here, saying, OK, what's, the, what's your plan? What do you need this propeller for? And working through it in that, in that kind of way. You know, we've had people with glass airs coming to see us this year. Um, plenty of people with 912s and Jabiru engines. So, uh, in fact, we are currently just finishing off the design for the night for a 912, uh, which will fit a lot of the typical uh, light sport aircraft aircraft. And um, yeah, so we're really excited about where we're going with this, and I think people are going to be really excited to see what efficiency gains they can get from a bolt-on 
um, product like this. And the one that we're looking at at the moment is, is a fixed pitch propeller, but uh, it will it comes in variable pitch no, format as well? No, that'll be further down the track in our stage two and stage three development. The, the reality is that at this stage, a fixed pitch propeller on the current design aircraft that most of them we're looking at is going to be more efficient than a constant pitch propeller any day of the week. You know, constant pitch has really been done for people's convenience in aircraft more than the efficiency of the aircraft. And so if people really want to break into that high efficiency in the aircraft, they're going to have to get back to, to fixed pitch propellers. I'm sure there's going to be people that disagree with me on that, but that's how the numbers stack up. And you can't, can't, can't disagree with the facts. Okay, thanks, Sean. And if people want to find out more about uh, the propellers that you do have available, your website? Yeah, no, just kiwipropellers.com is our uh, email address and website. Go on there, you can have a good look at uh, what we're doing and John McGuinness and get in contact with us. Tell us what airplane you need to propel a logo on and we'll, uh, we'll look to design one for you. Excellent. Thanks for your time. No worries. Thanks, Ben. This is ATC Ben out at Oshkosh 2012 and the power of Twitter. The power of Twitter at Oshkosh. You just meet all sorts of people on Twitter and uh, everybody these days, it uh, seems to be you get talking to somebody and then you find out what their Twitter handle is and you find out you've actually been talking to them for a while anyway. I'm not the only one that has made the big arduous journey over the Pacific. I'm with uh, Glenn Teller, who's come all the way from uh, New Zealand or uh, the good state of Eastern Australia, as we like to say. And uh, he's uh, NZ Aircraft Fan on Twitter, for those of you who want to go and uh, follow him. And Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. It really is good to be here. And uh, just describe for us the uh, the feeling of the drinking from the fire hose, as Grant McCarran put it. Oh, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's just amazing, this place. It's just mind-blowing. I mean, it's like the biggest air show in the world. What else can you say? You know, it's just, you got to come here to see it. you got to come here to experience it. You know, you can read about it, you can watch YouTube about it, but to actually be here, mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's um, I think I've explored about a quarter of this place in four days, so uh, it's uh, it's definitely a, a task to uh, to say that you've been here and done it all. Uh, I think anyone that says that is actually lying. So what's uh, been the highlight of your Oshkosh so far? I would say the Mustangs yesterday. About four or five Mustangs are flying around, and that is just you know, the sound of a Merlin engine in a Mustang is just fantastic. And then B25s are going around and T6s and all these aircraft all up in the air at the same time. That was just amazing. Yeah, that's cool. And seeing the B29 too. I was driving down the road from south of here, coming up here. You tell the winners a B29, like, oh, that's just crazy. You just don't see that in New Zealand or, you know, big four-engine bombers. You just don't get them. Now, the, uh, the other thing that's a, a quite an adjustment coming to this air show, uh, which I've had, but uh, Glenn, you've been from New Zealand, you, you're going to have a worse transition, is uh, the temperature difference between home and here. Um, it's currently, it's, it's just starting to rain, actually, and uh, there's, a, there's a few uh, friendly Oshkosh thunderstorms building up. The humidity's uh, getting quite high again. So how have you found the temperature? Murder. Absolute murder. Especially the Monday. That was the worst day. 102 Fahrenheit. I'm not sure what it is in centigrade. 40, I suppose. I don't know. But it was murder. I was dying. I couldn't just drink enough water. No. So there you go. There's the other perspective uh, from the other side of the ditch. I'm not the only one that's made the big arduous journey of thousands and thousands of miles on the back of a 777 across the Pacific. Glenn, thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, we'll hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. It's good to be here.
This is ATC Ben. We're now on day seven of Oshkosh 2012. The C5's left, the KC135's left, and uh, everybody's slowly heading for the door. And uh, I've managed to grab the Gibbs Aero guys before they uh, hit the road, heading for the next air show to uh, promote the good old aircraft from down under. And uh, with me, I've got uh, two Gibbs Aero people on the other end of the table here. And I'll let them introduce themselves and uh, tell us a bit about what their uh, first Oshkosh experience for one of them and uh, how their show went. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. Well, my name is Matthew. I'm the US representative out here at the US at the moment, and it's been a good show. Uh, we're just coming to the end of it now. Seven days of sun, rain, <laughs> winds, <laughs> and uh, some more sun again, so it's been really good. And we're sitting here with Elizabeth from Groom Aviation, who's Hi. a consultant to, to Capsera. So it's my, been my first show as well, um, being a, just the first time I've been here in Oshkosh. Um, so it's been amazing to see the, the variety and the quantity of aircraft out here. Uh, we brought two aircraft along, we brought uh, two GA8 airvans, the TC version, the turbocharged version. And we had pretty good interest um, at the show. A lot of people coming by and the amount of people who know what the aircraft is has increased a lot. Um, you know, in older shows we had people coming along and saying, oh what's that? Didn't know what it was. But these days they, you know, they come along and say, oh, this is the airvan. Oh, looks good. Nice cabin. Big payload. So we're getting a lot more recognition in the market, which is great. And that's, you know, thanks to we've been on the cover of Flying Magazine. We've been on the cover of Pilot, Plane and Pilot, Aviation Trader, Trader Plane, Aviation Digest. We have a lot of good marketing going out recently. And we're going to start capitalizing on that. And a lot of the, the U.S. exposure is from, uh, you've had a few uh, sales with the, the Civil Air Patrol. They started using the airvan. Yep, we've got 16 aircraft currently with the Civil Air Patrol. Um, they're flying them for multi-mission type roles with, um, they've got one, four of them with uh, hyperspectral radar in it. They like the airvan for its big cabin space and ability to put two operator workstations in as well as a pilot and carry a payload as well. They can pull all the seats out, they can just carry troops or they can do observations from the airvan as well. Big windows and all that sort of stuff. Then we've got a few tour operators operating out here in America, um, four in uh, Hawaii doing tourist flights and the rest of them are a mishmash of tourism, private operators uh, and just multi-mission aircraft. And Elizabeth, is this your first Oshkosh? No, this would be my fourth Oshkosh, first time with Gips Aero. It's always a long week but a very fun week and it's been great meeting and working with all these guys here. I've been helping them kind of set up the show because as you all would figure it's kind of hard to arrange a show halfway around the world although Matthew is here in the US um, but it, it's been a lot of fun I'm very um, happy with the product this is my first time ever seeing the product here at the show and I just finished a walk around with the the designer the inventor and the founder of the company George Morgan is a great airplane and it's something I'm very excited to help Gibbs Aero market in North America I think there's going to be be a lot of interest in the coming years Excellent. And uh, where to for you guys uh, from here? Well, we've got a bit of a break, thankfully. <laughs> we've had two shows pretty much back-to-back. -back. We were at the um, ALEA convention, which is the Airborne Law Enforcement Association convention back out in California. That was two weeks ago. Um, so we've basically just flown the aircraft across from California. A beautiful flight across the um, across half of US. Brought it in here, and the next couple of weeks are going to be spent just processing all the information that we've gathered over the last week, getting our leads sorted out, um, yeah, just having a bit of a break and, and focusing on the next one. The next show which we've got coming up is AOPA, the um, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. That's happening in the start of October. So that's about, what, two months away? So I've got some good time to consolidate and get a few demos done before um, October comes around. 
course, playing crazy with big supporters of Gibbs Aero being uh, just down the road instead of nine and a half thousand miles away. <laughs> so uh, good to see the uh, the company still going strong and uh, putting the flag out uh, in the uh, in the US market. Yeah, we're really focusing on the US market this year. We've got um, a couple of new dealers on board. Uh, Flightline down in Florida and Muncie in this Midwest. Um, so it's great to have their support and you know we can get a greater coverage of, of the US market with those guys. We've got a big program of um, product improvements coming forward. We've just announced a new warranty for the event. So every new event is now sold with a five year or 2,000 hour warranty. Um, so that basically means that an operator can fly the, the aircraft without any problems basically until its first engine overhaul, uh, which is pretty incredible. It's, uh, it's one of the market-leading warranty periods around. I don't know of any other manufacturer offers it such a big warranty. And, you know, we, we can just want to stand behind our product, show them people who don't know the aircraft so well that it is a good product and it's going to fly reliably and just get that, that risk out of their purchase for a new aircraft. So it's looking great in the US. Um, we're really keen to keep working, keep growing the market over here. And um, of course, we're not forgetting about Australia. They're still back in, uh, back at home. And for the guys back in Australia, the next one is Avalon. It's coming up just in um, February next year, and that's already started the organisation for that uh, air show down there. Well, I think we've all had a great time, and it's been a long week, and uh, we're all looking forward to uh, heading other places than Oshkosh. As much fun as Oshkosh is. <laughs> so, uh, Matthew and Elizabeth, thank you very much for your time. Thank Thanks, you. Ben. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. On December 1st, I'll be sending the Matt Hall Racing Extra 300L down to Turin in Victoria with pilot Dan O'Donnell at the controls for a great day of flying action. This is your chance to experience the thrill and excitement of our adventure joy flights. The Extra is the fastest, most powerful and manoeuvrable two-seat aerobatic aircraft in Australia, which allows you to fly at up to 400 kilometres an hour, roll at 360 degrees per second, and experience up to 8G like I do in the air race. Dan is a current F-18 Hornet pilot and tailors each flight to your individual requirements from a scenic joy flight right through to racing and air show manoeuvres. Now get in quick to secure your ride. It's the ultimate Christmas present. For more information, visit us at matthallracing.com or email us at joyflights at matthallracing.com Plan your flight, fly your plan. With Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breeze and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes Store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium, and you're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. And welcome back, folks. Well, it sounds like you were pretty busy over there in the, uh, the with the Kiwi contingent there, Ben. And uh, I'll tell you what, uh, Kiwi props in particular, that's fascinating stuff. Uh, no need for a uh, constant speed propeller, they're saying. Yeah, that sort of caught me by surprise because uh, we were talking about the fixed pitch props and uh, that's what they had on display there. And so naturally, that's what led me to ask the question about when's when's the, the constant speed version coming out. And, oh, no, we don't need a constant speed version. And I was sort of sitting there, sort of just had to do a double take on that one and going, hang on a second. I, I must admit when I was 
was editing that, I, I stopped the edit and went back and listened again. Did he just say that? But, uh, well, there you go. <laughs> That's fascinating. So they must be fantastically efficient propellers. Uh, what do they look like? It, uh, it's got that sort of that carbon fibre look on it, and it looked very nice bolted on the front of anything you were choosing to fly, I think. Mm, yeah, well, I could see that being a great advantage to some of the less aerodynamic aircraft, let's say a Cessna 172, I think, <laughs> right off the top. Yeah, it's um, it's going to be good for that that sort of market that uh, you can just bolt this thing on and because of the way the propeller's designed, it takes away a lot of the inefficiencies that you get and obviously because it's carbon instead of a uh, chunk of metal, there's, there's probably going to be some weight savings as, as well there. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, we've got links in the show notes to all those interviews and all those uh, supplies there, so we're not only for our Kiwi listeners, but uh, really anybody, get on and uh, have a look at those businesses and it's it's, it's no small effort to uh, get across there from our part of the world to the US and to Oshkosh and to get those displays set up but uh, I'd say it'd be well worth it because uh, pushing into the US market that's uh, really uh, what it's all about. Uh, also great to hear Glenn Taylor there NZ Aircraft fan on uh, Twitter I mean he, uh, he's always good and retweeting a lot of our stuff so uh, I'm glad you got to meet him over there. Yeah that's that's just like the Twitterverse in, in uh, Oshkosh was just crazy at one point uh, at one of the bacon parties it was like we were just sort of sitting around talking to each other and you, you sort of introduced yourself by name and then it doesn't really click until you you end up by the end of the show you say you say your name first and then you just say your twitter handle next and then everyone goes i know you (laughs) (laughs) okay fantastic well i'll tell you what folks we've been alluding to it for actually since the last episode and we've we've teased you long enough let's say hello to the uh, latest member of the pcdu team somebody who's been on the show a number of times before and has sent us lots of cockpit audio from his time as a student pilot it's damien rose how are you mate good mate and yourself welcome back to the show and uh well thanks for uh, letting us shoehorn you into becoming our uh, Queensland correspondent. Yeah, no problem. It's my pleasure. I've been listening, well, since the the birth of it all, really, so it's great to be able to put something back into the podcasting community. Now, Damien, let's let's go back in time a little bit. Now, uh, for those uh, newer listeners to the show who uh, might not be familiar with your journey through aviation, let's let's talk about uh, how you got into it and where it's taken you and actually what you had to sacrifice to uh, pay for that training in the early days. Well, back when I was a, a little lad, my father was in the Air Force, so he... Um, from my living memory onward, he, he worked with 482 Squadron at RAF Base Ambly on the electronic countermeasures on the F-111s. And from there, he then went uh, back to 9 Squadron. He served in 9 Squadron in Vietnam and he went back to 9 Squadron on the Iroquois as a radio technician. So since I was a little tacker, I was around aeroplanes and, you know, seeing Dad put the choppers away after work and, and whatever else that went along with that. And um, always wanted to be a RAF pilot, but didn't apply myself at school like a lot of young fellas probably don't do too well and um, ended up life went on and uh, but I still always wanted to fly and came down to I think 2009 was a bit of a turning point for me is where I started to learn how to fly. Um, I was doing part-time at the Darling Downs Aero Club in Toowoomba and uh, started out on the Piper Tomahawks or the Tromahawks as they're affectionately known for yeah. a number of reasons. All of them and, valid. Yes, very much so. <laughs> and, um, and so I was flying part-time and working and then it got to the point where I was, I would say, dissatisfied with my employment and, uh, and just wanted to live the dream. So my wife and I, she's a very trusting, understanding and supportive lady, agreed to sell our house to finance the venture. Wow. And so we did that. We sold the house and I went full-time and, and within the space of five months, I finished off my commercial pilot's license and night VFR rating. So last time we spoke uh, on air was September 4, I think it was episode 42. And uh, and that was about two weeks before I took my commercial pilot's license flight test. Gee, a long time back, mate. I didn't realise it had been uh, 50 plus episodes. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while. Um, we've obviously talked 
since, but it's yeah, that was the last chat we had. It was right before I did my commercial, and so since then I've um, completed a multi-engine command instrument rating. I did that at the Royal Queensland Aero Club at Archerfield in the Duchess, which is I really enjoyed flying the Duchess. I thought it was a nice plane for two people. I wouldn't probably want to put yeah. more. People in. <laughs> no. Expect to go anywhere, and with one engine, with one engine at zero thrust, it was no performer. Let's just say that. And then I did a turbine endorsement on the Cessna Caravan for a job prospect that I had lined up as a, a jump pilot at Tiagra with Skydive Australia. And uh, I really, really, really enjoyed flying the Caravan. That is one beautiful aeroplane, in my opinion. Cool. It, it's a pretty huge aircraft, that's for sure. I mean, especially when they when they whack them up on floats. Yeah, it is. And and you know, just the whole presence. I remember going. Uh, on the day that I did my endorsement at Redcliffe, standing in front of the caravan and, and doing the walk around and you know the pre-flight and uh, and daily inspection and then actually having to fold the ladder down to climb up to the the left hand seat, it just kind of blew my mind because everything else had been Tomahawks 172s, 182s, and then the largest thing I'd flown obviously was the Duchess. So it's funny because I'll I'll show people photos. I'll say, oh, so what are you flown? And I'll show them the photos and then I'll get to the caravan and this is the big beast that I was flying and I go big. That's tiny. And you're thinking, oh, I guess because you're probably comparing it to a 747, it would be tiny. But, um, yeah, to a low-hour pilot, it was a very nice aircraft. Tell us about the conversion process. I mean, your initial impressions going up from the 172 or whatever you're flying, going up to the caravan, I mean, obviously a heavier aircraft for a start. I, I remember when I was doing my flight training, there was a gentleman, I think his name was Gary Tierney, who flies for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. He was at the Aero Club in Toowoomba and uh, he was there in uniform and they were out at Toowoomba doing circuits in the the brand new caravan that the Flying Doctors um, out of the Brisbane base had. And I remember one of the other pilots in the club lounge, they're saying, oh, so Gary, what's it like to fly? And he said, oh, it's just a big 182 on steroids. Yeah. And I chuckled and thought, oh, yeah, I could see that because it kind of looks like a 182. It's just oversized. And to be quite honest, on the controls, it kind of felt more like a 206 to me, a little bit heavier than a 182, um, but very nicely balanced aircraft. The big thing that was the big difference and it took the most getting my head around was just handling the turbine. Yeah. Um, obviously, having that lag compared to, you know, you, you push the throttle forward on a, a piston engine aircraft and, and quite instantaneously you've got the, the result that you were looking for. Whereas when you push the power lever forward with the turbine powered aircraft, you've got that lag before you get what you were expecting. And then you've got to be on the ball to make sure you don't give it too much thrust or that you don't give it too much temperature in the inter-turbine temperature. You know, so you've got other things you've got to be thinking about and watching for, as well as then flying the aircraft and making sure you're running down the center line and you're checking your airspeed and making sure all the other things are going on. So that's probably what the most intense thing for me in learning how to fly the aircraft was, was engine management. Yeah, like hot starts especially, things like that. It, it doesn't have a uh, like a full FADEC, does it? No. So you've got to keep an eye on everything. And hot starts were obviously was something that was drilled into me throughout the endorsement, but then more so uh, following the endorsement and actually in, in flying training with Skydiving Australia, like in any organisation that has any kind of credibility, has standard operating procedures. Yep. So, you know, it's very specific laid out as to what you do in the event of and then in the flight safety manual it's obviously specified exactly what you do down to the seconds uh, if yeah. in the event of a hot start and, and so on and so forth well i mean you overcook a turbine and that's a very expensive fix yeah absolutely it's not very good for you ongoing career prospects. <laughs> no, no, it wouldn't do too much for it, I wouldn't imagine. Your career warning light goes into hyperdrive in the corner of your vision. Yep. Did, yes. did, did you have any experience with, with the, the Garrett, uh, like the direct drive kind of engine as well, or they're just all PT6? No, it was all PT6, that's all I, I flew. And I only logged, I think in the end I logged 
48 hours in the caravan um, before I had to pull the pin on it, which is a whole other story. Well, let's get to that story in a sec, Damien, because uh, you, d- you did sort of fade away for a while and we were a bit worried about, uh, you know, what had happened with your career. But I'm interested about your impressions of uh, meat bombing. <laughs> I tell you what, I was a bit apprehensive before I started. Because you just don't know. You don't know what uh, a certain type of or group of people are going to be like. Um, I tell you what, though, I found skydivers an extremely exciting and genuine group of people that I really grew to love. There's some wildies in there that were just <laughs> great fun to be around, and uh, and I found them very energetic. So, and, and the other thing that, and once again, credit to the crew at Skydive Australia, very professional, and, you know, the risk factor, in my opinion, someone who had at the time four children and one on the way i mean you know life to me is very precious so i was obviously very concerned with the the prospect of of deliberately flying a, a situation that has this added element of risk they handled themselves very very professionally and, and everything had to be right and uh all things didn't happen and um so in the end uh, when i say in the end you know after a couple of weeks i felt very confident within myself that it was a very safe operation of course, there's still that element of risk, but you get that every time you get in a car or jump on your bike and ride down the street. Um, but if things are if procedures are followed correctly, then that risk is uh, reduced. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was great. I remember um, I was actually right hand seating. We were up at Tully, and um, I'd gone up just to you know watch the pilot up there. His name was Matty Smith. He's now flying Cessna Conquests, I think, over in Kununurra. But anyway, um, I was right hand seating and. There was uh, 16 other people on board that were about to jump out, including, you know, film crews and whatnot. And um, there was a contingency of Asian girls that were strapped to the tandem masters getting ready to drop out of this plane. And this one girl was just starting to panic. And she'd paid for the jump, which was about $300. And she'd paid for a, a camera guy to be with her, which is like another couple of hundred bucks. And she wouldn't move. She was frozen. And they got her down there. And I remember her hanging on for grim life or grim death, just hanging on. And she wouldn't jump. She wouldn't let him go in the end. And so they pulled her back in. And, of course, the tandem master's a bit bummed because they love the thrill of the jump and the camera guy was bummed. She forfeited a 500 bucks, and I was just blown away. I remember another time, um, there was a similar kind of situation. In fact, it was another Asian girl, same kind of thing. She was freaking out and screaming and carrying on, and they literally just grabbed her arms and pulled them in and just dropped out straight away. And I was just laughing my head off thinking, and the poor girl going to be screaming out of her head right now. But got down on the ground and I went up to her and said, how was it? And she said, oh, it was the best thing I ever did. Yep. So, yeah, it was interesting, interesting to see the expressions and, and the fear. And uh, will I ever jump out of an aeroplane? No. No. Yeah. I was going to ask. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're one of the sane people that doesn't like jumping out of a perfectly serviceable aircraft. Ah. Well, and that's the thing. That's the thing, Ben. Are they perfectly serviceable? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm prepared question. to take the risk. <laughs> but, but I mean, I know some some jump places like their uh, meat bombers to actually have dive themselves. Oh, yeah. Of all of the uh, jump pilots that were there, I was the only one that hadn't done it. And um, and their policy was the pilot's first jump is free. So oh, dude. I could have gone for nothing, but there was no way. I had to wear a, a chute in the event of an emergency so I could get out of the aircraft and obviously come down to the ground preferably in one piece, and uh, and that was, I'd told myself, if, if ever I pull a parachute ripcord, that'll be the event that I do it in. So I actually had to get trained in emergency procedures, yep. and I'd be trained how to use a parachute and the proper way to land, and 
that's all part of the jump pilot authorization that you've got to do, which I found fascinating. And I just said to myself, no, nah, the only time I'm jumping out of a plane is if I have to jump out of a plane. <laughs> this will be the, the ripcord I pull. All the aerobatics I've done, the only time I've ever worn a parachute was in the L39. Yeah, you got a basic brief on uh, how to bail and how to pop the chute and sort of told how to land. But uh, yeah, it's basically because... If you're using it, you're in big trouble. But yeah. You want to go through the briefing, Grant, where Mark Pracy says, oh, we'll take the canopy off, basically, you unstrap, I'll turn the plane upside down and you'll fall out. Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. I'm like, geez, can't I stay with you? <laughs> so this, this is why if I ever went in a jet fighter, I'd want to have bang chairs in there. So at least you just pull the handle and all the rest of it's done for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You'd be like that guy in South Africa who um, was either trying to grab for a handhold when they were manoeuvring, but he banged himself out. Damien, uh, apart from the meat bombing, of course, um, some of your more memorable trips. I mean, it's it's been a very, very exhilarated uh, you know course that you did to get to your commercial and uh, obviously a very successful one to obtain it in such a short time. Uh, what are some of your more memorable uh, flights during training? I was very fortunate in that the Darling Down Zero Club allowed me to basically do what I wanted to do. I had to do a select number, I think it was about a half a dozen, either six or eight planned flights with grade one instructors. Um, and they were obviously, you know, periodically through my flying to make sure that I was still doing everything right. But otherwise they said, hey, you know, fly around, check out the country, see what you want to see. I had to present everything to them first to have it approved. So with that in mind, I said to my wife, let's go for a fly somewhere that we, you know, have always wanted to go. And so we planned a flight. Um, we left Toowoomba and we flew to a place called Tibberborough, which is oh, about 100 k's south and east of, of the corner of well, Cameron's Corner, so right up in northwestern New South Wales. And then from there, that was a, I think I logged eight, eight and a half hours that day because we had a nasty headwind the whole way. Slept at the Tibbara Hotel, which was the accommodation, which, um, tell you what, served the best steak of the whole trip that we had. It was beautiful, the food. <laughs> and, uh, and I had to order my fuel six weeks in advance, so I was just praying that it was going to be there. And in fact, for me, you know, I, I mean, I was a fresh pilot. I'd had my private pilot's license for about a month and a half. For me, the scariest part was that flying into, in inverted commas, remote Australia was making sure that we had you know, sufficient water and, and other emergency supplies should something happen and we have to make a forced landing. But I'd, I'd planned that on that leg from, because I refueled at, uh, I refueled at Kunnamulla, from that leg from Kunnamulla to Tibberborough, if I got geographically embarrassed, I was just going to turn <laughs> south until I hit the highway. And then from the highway, I could either turn east or west, and I'd either end up at Burke or whatever was the next town up the track. So, But we made Tibberborough, and then the next day we flew down to a little place called Akarula uh, on the Flinders Ranges, up in the northern end of the Flinders Ranges. Um, there's a guy there, and his name ex- escapes me, but the, the Akarula Resort is um, based, uh, obviously, at Akarula. They've got a shale strip there, a 600-metre shale strip that... Um, you can fly into and he's got fuel and he's got hangar and um, the guy that runs the place is one of the sweetest guys I've ever met. He's a pilot himself. He's got a Cessna 207 that he does scenics up around Lake Air and you give him a call and let him know you're coming and, you know, you're going to obviously stay there. You've got to stay there and have a look around. It's an absolutely magical place and you get the, basically the red carpet rolled out for you. We rocked up in the afternoon there and he met us there and we refueled the plane and put it away in the hangar and then he drove us back to, to the resort in his Forby and um, and said, so what are you going to do this afternoon? And I went, oh, I don't know. We'll probably just wander around and have a look. He said, well, I've got these two elderly ladies that wanted to get out on a tour today, but they, they missed it because they were busy doing something else. He said, how about I 
I give you the keys and you take them for a drive. And so I'm a four-wheel driver myself. So I was like, <laughs> sweet. So we jumped in his 80 series cruiser and, and went four-wheel driving all through the park. And at the end, he, when we got back, he said, um, I said, so what do we owe you for it? And he says, oh, look, how about you just make a donation to the Royal Flying Doctors? And he had this tin there. So we, 50 bucks each, popped it in the tin and called it quits. And he was happy and we were ecstatic. Akarul, a good place to visit, especially for pilots. Um, the next day, we tracked up and went over Lake Eyre up to William Creek. We'd planned on, on heading up to Cadney Homestead on the Northern Territory, South Australian border, and then onto Ayers Rock the next day. But um, we had a low cloud and a lot of turbulence, and my wife got a migraine about 20 minutes into the hour and a half long flight. Oops. And so turning onto final at William Creek, she decided it was time to vomit uh, 20 seconds before obviously touching down and then that was it. I booked a room at the William Creek Hotel and we stayed there the night and she slept it off. The next day we flew down to Mari in Broken Hill where I visited a, a friend there and then took him and his son for a fly out to Wilpina Pound in the southern Flinders Ranges and then um, the day after that flew back to Brewarrina where we met up with a friend of my mother's and then back to Toowoomba. So that was a... Wow. a five-day flight that my wife and I got to do that otherwise, you know, who gets to do that? And see some beautiful country. I can't emphasize enough. And it it breaks my heart even to look at our photos because it just does not look like the Streslecky Desert just after we had all that rain was green. Oh, yeah. Lake Air was in full bloom. It was just magic to see all that from the air. Fantastic. That was very memorable. Um, Another memorable, (laughs) memorable thing I've done done it three times now and i think i don't like to push the my luck with the tower controllers in brisbane but there's two ways you can get across brisbane airspace one's it as a vfr aircraft one's at uh, seven thousand feet and the other's at um 1500 feet right over the top of the brisbane control tower so the first time i did that i did it all wrong i i, I read the um not sure if it's a fly enabling advice. It's not a fly enabling advice. Whatever it is in the back of the air, so I can't remember now. The directions to get across, but then the other couple of times I, I nailed it, and um, and that's magic. Uh, you know, being made to do orbits while aircraft are coming in and 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 departing, and uh, and they time you up with them, and and basically say right, you know, whatever you call sign is Tango Whiskey Bravo, make best possible speed across and uh, and out the other side, and and so you basically go full throttle full mixture and burn across the airport it's it's awesome at 1500 feet so i've done that nice. i took my father across there and i took a mate of mine across there and they both loved it time to buzz the tower yeah but you know you're not really buzzing the tower <laughs> well, are you going right over the top of it at 1500 feet uh, in a lady yeah it's about as close as it gets isn't yeah, it's it? as close as i'm gonna get that's right <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's another memorable experience that I've had. I've actually had the, the great pleasure of becoming a, a thorn in Brisbane's hand for the uh, the whole morning doing aerial photography right off the departure into the duty runway. Oh, nice! <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that, that that went down real well. Oh yeah, <laughs> lead balloon. <laughs> yeah, I, I said to the approach control, I said, "What's a good time to do this air work for these couple of jobs we've got right off the end of one nine? And he said, um, tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> because when I'm, not, I'm not on? Because I'm not going to be here, exactly. <laughs> well, but the poor controllers down in Brisbane Approach, I think they used to get pretty frustrated with us at Tiagra because if you watch Flight Pro, the flight tracking software, if you watch that, you'll find the, the plane, the aircraft coming into 3.6 into the Gold Coast will track right over the top of Tiagra at something like 7,000 feet. And the aircraft landing on, oh, sorry, they're at about 4,500 feet. The aircraft coming into 1.8 are at about 7,500 feet and they direct them right over the top of the airfield. So we're, we'd do parachute drops at, from 14,000 feet and, you know, you'd kick off at 7 in the morning. You'd by 7.45, you shut down. They just wouldn't let us up because it was peak time. 
every five minutes you got a plane flying over the head and the poor air traffic controllers didn't want to have to, you know, be concerned with some guy in a, a caravan flying up to flight level 140 to drop uh, 15 shoots out of the plane that are going to be scooting down, trying to time that between 737s and A320s that are, you know, five minutes apart. It was, yeah, I, I kind of felt for them. And you could tell that in the high stress times, they'd just, just say, nah, you're going to have to hold on the ground for an hour and a half till, till we're done. So, uh, Damien, uh, now, of course, uh, it, it did sort of come to a bit of a halt there. What happened? What happened? Um, I think I think it happened when I was doing my command instrument rating in Brisbane. So my wife was in Toowoomba with the children, and I was travelling down to Brisbane during the week, and that took four weeks. So oh, I was coming wow. home Friday night, and I'd leave early Monday morning or Sunday night, and something happened, and she fell pregnant. With number five. And so, yes. And so that was in November when I was actually, uh, while I was doing the instrument rating in prep for flying the caravan because it was part of their requirement. But we didn't find that out until about January. So I'd been about a month into training to be checked to line there. And then February rolled around. And, and you remember, you may remember that summer we had really bad weather. That's when we had yep. the big flood in Toowoomba and, and Cyclone Yasi came through. Yeah, we were so a bit my- worried about you there, mate. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, we all pulled through. I was actually in I was in a hangar at Toowoomba Airfield when all that rain came and cool. took two hours to drive home, which would normally take me 15 minutes because all the bridges were knocked out by one. But anyway, that's another story. So cut a long story short, my training got dragged out from three weeks to three months because of the bad weather that we had. Obviously, if the clouds too thick or too low or the winds are too high, you know, jumpers can't jump. And um, it got to the point where the kids were ready to start school. My son was going into prep and my daughter was going into grade one. And uh, and my other daughter, she was, I think, going into grade six. And, and Joe was, by that time, three months pregnant or four months pregnant. And, and here I was about to uproot my family and move my wife and, uh, and the four kids and the one on the way away from my parents who lived about 100 metres down the road and her parents who lived about 10 minutes drive away and I just said, oh, I just can't do it. So uh-uh. I put the brakes on and, and went back to my old employer and, and got work with them. And that's what I've been doing basically, just steadying the ship for the minute. And uh, wife's very supportive. She um, wants me to keep flying and, and keep my ratings up, which is good. Because she knows great. I'll do it again one day, but right now it's just it's just not the time. If she hadn't have fallen pregnant, it would be a different story. Um, yeah, well, that's what happens when you don't keep close air support watch on the stalk, mate. <laughs> you should have been studying instead. <laughs> I wouldn't trade my son for anything, though. I'd, yeah. I'd to have him. I'd I'd give up flying in a heartbeat. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, you've, it's not only a matter of being pragmatic. Sometimes there's just things that are more important, like you say. And um, you know, you're, you're still a young man. I mean, you're under forty, aren't you? So I mean, you can. It's not like you can't come back to it. No, that's right. I'm, I'm 36 next month, so I'm still pretty young. The, the plan is, the long-term plan is um, I'll do my instructor rating. That's what I really want to do now, now that I've kind of experienced the instrument flying. Ultimately, I'd love to instruct multi-engine instrument. I think that would be the pinnacle of, of a career point for me or a career path for me. So I'm giving myself five to ten years to get the instructor rating under my belt, and uh, and that'll give me ample time, A, to get you know more experience myself, but B, really bed that knowledge into my head. What I've noticed over the past six months in particular, um, because we've been, I've just had a promotion at work and, and we've moved to the Sunshine Coast in Queensland here. So I've been fairly distracted with work. So my theory, my flight theory is really suffering. I've got my annual flight review um, on Saturday, day after tomorrow. And, and so I've been hitting the books, just trying to get fresh with everything again. 
So I'm really looking forward to putting a focus back on hitting the books more and really cementing that knowledge in my head. Um, the last thing I think any potential future student of mine needs is a Damien who kind of is just fudging his way through a briefing. You know, I, I know myself when I was being taught, I felt a lot more comfortable and confident with those instructors that just knew what they were talking about. Yep. And if you asked a question and they didn't know, they wouldn't fudge some answer. They'd say, I'll get back to you. And, and then they'd provide that information. So that's my goal uh, at this point in time is to, is to become an instructor and become a damn good one. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I, when I took the instructing job at work, and for listeners who don't know, I make a living out of teaching people to drive trains these days. Uh, when I first went into that role about a year or so back, it's interesting how many, how much stuff you thought you knew that you've forgotten, and you, uh, a lot of theory stuff that you've really got. To, even though the, uh, I was still working in that industry, there's there's sort of bits and pieces of theory that uh, you don't use every day. And uh, yep. like you say, if you, it's it's sort of use it or lose it. I think sometimes with uh, with the human brain, that was a really uh, real eye opener for me. So I think the skill comes uh, when you when you find your yourself a student who uh, perhaps knows more than you do then you uh, pick up as much as you can really quickly <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they do say that the uh, you, you you only truly know a subject when you teach it properly so uh, you know it's if as you're saying Steve it's it's when you go to teach it that you realize oh hang on I've forgotten that didn't know that wait a minute what's all this now to any of my trainees listening to this just forget that I just said that <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to experience the same thing. I'm in the, over the next couple of months. I'll be getting my uh, instructor ticket as well. So uh, yes, I'm, I'm not looking forward to the day when the uh, bright young person straight out of the academy who's just been digesting this for the last twelve months and goes, "Oh, yeah, but hang on, don't you do it?" And we go, "Oh yeah, that's right." <laughs> <laughs> So, Damien, I'm having a look here on your website, which uh, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, but uh, it appears you've uh, managed to uh, find yourself a rather neat-looking 172 to fly around at a good rate. Yeah, I went up to um, to the Gympie airfield. My brother and sister-in-law live up there, and, and so we go up there fairly often. So I stopped in there and had a chat with a guy that was in the hangar there at the Gympie Aero Club, and they don't themselves have aircraft that they private hire, but there's a couple of uh, RAOs uh, outfits on the field that do, and, uh, and this one in particular. Um, she's got a, a 172 and a, a 150 that they've got for private hire. In fact, they've got an air coupe that they'll take you up in too, which oh, I'm cool. going to do because that, that, that's one sweet looking little aircraft. So anyway, yeah, I got talking with her and, and they hire that 172 out for $180 wet. Wow. Mm. And so I was just like, sorry, can you say that again? She said, oh, yeah, 180 wet. Truth be told, she actually gives it to me for $170 wet, but for the public, the price is $180 wet. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, you just can't go past that. It's an hour's drive to Gympie Aerodrome. It's 20 minutes drive to Caboolture, um, but the price difference is more than pays for petrol. It's, it's only a night VFR rated, so I, I can't do any IFR in it. Um, but, yeah, for flying around Gympie, and, and Gympie's like 10 minutes to Rainbow Beach and Fraser Island, it's, it's beautiful to fly around that area. Outstanding. Well, now, of course, we've shoehorned you into becoming our Queensland correspondent, and we're, we're really happy with that. I mean, uh, bringing in uh, Ben over there in the West, uh, it, it really helps us to to get more content and from uh, a wider range of experience uh, from right around the country, so it's a really positive thing. I guess um, the aviation scene up there around Brisbane and uh, and the Gold Coast and Queensland in general, pretty vibrant, would you say, at the moment? Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm planning on heading to the Caboolture Warplane Museum Antique Aircraft Day, which is on the 18th of November. That's a Sunday from 9 till 3. 
three. And that looks like it's going to be a pretty good day. Caboolture is quite an interesting airfield with the different types of air- aircraft that are down there. I, I dropped in there. I had to go down there for work um, last week. Don't tell me my employees. I dropped in there just to have a bit of a bow peep. <laughs> and just as I was driving out, there was two tiger moths taking off in formation. And I was just like, you don't see that every day. Oh, that's but, nice. Yeah, fascinating what's down there at that airfield. So I'm heading down to that, and I have to seconder a few people there. A couple of weekends before that, on the 3rd of November in Toowoomba, they've got the celebration of 100 years of the Toowoomba airfield. So I'm, I'm going to try and get up to that. And then, of course, there's things like the Wide Bay Air Show. Uh, that'll be on next year. And um, various other events that most certainly the, the aviation world in Queensland is thriving and, and I'm finding the more I look, especially at places like Watts Bridge and, and a couple of other these smaller aerodromes, there's always things happening, whether it's with aerobatics or warbirds or antique aircraft and, you know, they're mixing car shows. I think there's one on this weekend out at Kingaroy, a uh, similar kind of thing. So, yeah, there's always something happening. Oh, it sounds like there's a lot, a lot of good stuff going on and uh, you're reasonably well-placed to go and check it all out too. Yeah, well, to be honest, now that I'm not in Toowoomba, Toowoomba's a lovely place, but it's fairly distant from the bulk of civilization in Queensland when it comes to southeast Queensland. Now that I'm here, I'll, yeah, I'm in a position where I can get up to a few different things here, there and everywhere. The goal is to take Whiskey Sierra Lima and, and fly to these places when things are happening. So that's the way I want to do it. Outstanding. Well, I think that's a good excuse for all of us to come up there for a holiday. They say it's beautiful one day and perfect the next. Sounds good to me. You can fly straight into Sunshine Coast, which is like 10 minutes away. Okay, well, as we say, uh, Damien is going to be up there reporting on happenings as he finds them up there in the Sunshine State. So if uh, any of our listeners from anywhere in the country would uh, like to know uh, what's going on up there, or if you've got an event or a story idea, certainly drop it into us here at uh, playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com and uh, we'll pass that information on. And you can find out more on Damien's aviation journey along with his thoughts on life and technology at his own website, ozflyboy.com. And we'll have a link to that site in the show notes. Well, a bit earlier on, we heard Ben chat with some of the crew from Kips Aero, a great example of a successful Australian manufacturer. And, uh, of course, they're exporting airframes all over the world. After the break, we'll present a package of interviews recorded at last year's AirVenture featuring George Morgan, co-founder of the company, Kartik Krishnamurti from Mahindra Aerospace, the company that now owns Kips Aero, and Rod Reckick from mytransponder.com, who's also a pilot in the U.S. Civil Air Patrol and uh, flies the GA-8 airband, and uh, he'll offer his thoughts there. Plus, listener mail, shout-outs, and much more all to come when Plane Crazy Down Under continues. Hi, I'm Angie from Oz Air Services. Join us on Saturday, December the 1st at Touradin Airfield in Victoria for the second annual Touradin Airfield and Plane Crazy Down Under Flying and Aviation Open Day. Come along for a great day of community and fun where you can meet with the entire team, jump out of the sky with commando skydivers, fly upside down with adventure wings, try your hands at the controls and soar above the world in your own private plane, or enjoy a meal at the newly managed Wings and Fins restaurant. There'll be live music by Sarah Gardiner, Lions Club Sausage Sizzle, and even discount joy flights over Western Port Bay. And of course, the plane crazy guys will be doing their stuff with the mobile studio in tow. Drive down or fly in. Everyone's welcome. Find out more at ozairservices.com.au. Always wanted to be a Top Gun? Looking for the ultimate heart-pumping experience? JetRide gives you that and more. With your personally tailored flight and individual gift pack, JetRide will make your dreams come true. At up to 900 k's an hour in a Soviet-era L-39, this is the jet fighter thrill of a lifetime. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1300 554 876. Nothing is impossible. Mm-hmm. 
Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. George Morgan, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under and, of course, your own Gipsero Great Aussie Barbecue. Yeah, it's, it's something we've never been able to do before. It's, yeah, it's pretty good. Nice site, nice location too. Yeah. Excellent. Sounds like a bit of a party happening over there. Yeah, it sure does. Anyway, it's, Oshkosh is all party, I think. If, if you're an aviation nut, it's the place you've got to be. Yeah. That's for sure. Well, mate, uh, you're one of the co-founders of uh, then Gippsland Aeronautics, now Gipsero. So we'd like to walk back through memory lane just a little and talk about initially about how Gippsland Aeronautics came to be. Well, I guess uh, it was two people in particular, myself and Peter Furlong, my business partner, started Gipsero. As young kids, we were smitten with aviation and we're always being told we couldn't do things like that. And we both started to learn to fly and we're about 14 in gliders and things and uh, the passion grew from there. So uh, yeah, we decided that uh, we built home builds and gliders and all sorts of things and flew everything we could get our backsides in that anybody would let us in. And uh, eventually we figured we needed to build our own Australian aircraft. Plenty of people said you can't do that and we said, well, we figure we can. And so Peter and I set out and we were chopped, well, we built home builds, all sorts of things, and then we chopped up ag aeroplanes and made them more efficient, joined all the best features, uh, you know, of the various American ag aeroplanes around at the time. But unfortunately, we went to market with that aeroplane. We fully certified it to international standards in about 1990, 91, but the ag industry was in decline with EPA tightening the belt and et cetera. So... So we sort of got to the point where we thought, well, we sold 50 or 60 in a number of different countries, and we thought, well, we need to change tack here. So during our work in the outback on country and farm regions with the uh, GA200, there were plenty of people out there running businesses with 206s, Cessna 206s and um, Cherokee 6s. And, you know, they always figured, well, maybe we could do something a bit better. So we listened to what they wanted. We then took their their recipe, if you like, as a specification and basically converted the GA200, the aerial agricultural aeroplane, in, into what's now known as the air van. And people wanted to be able to have a high wing, stand under the wing out of the sun and the rain, no terminal buildings in the bush. Um, it had to have a big double width in-flight opening door and uh, things like a high-up tailplane so it could uh, taxi through the standard 14-foot uh, machinery gate on farms and things like that. Yeah, and uh, pretty much uh, we also listened very heavily to what the Missionary Aviation Fellowship wanted in the aeroplane and subsequently we, we just put an aeroplane together with that big flying box car and uh, an aisle up the centre and you can quick change it from seats to freight so it'll haul eight people on 300 horsepower which no other aeroplane in the world does. That's a bit of clever aerodynamics with the fuselage and lifting body fuselage and things like that and what we learnt from the AG aeroplane and pretty much that's made a lot of people happy we're just about to become the private aircraft manufacturing company in Australia which has produced more aircraft than anybody else before and that's about 170 aeroplanes which was more than the Victor Air Tour and more than the government aircraft factories nomad so that's a record we're about to break yeah Oh, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to seeing that one crumble to you. Yes, it'll be quite a milestone. Yeah, and it's, to a non-aviation buff in Australia, it probably doesn't mean much, but to us it means a lot. You know, yeah. It means we've managed to survive against all odds and uh, 
you know, put our heads down, their backsides up, and achieve it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, congratulations on that. That's very important and well done. Yeah. So we're now uh, last year or during the world market slowdown, things got pretty tough, and we needed to change gears. So um, the Mahindra Corporation, which is a large multinational corporation, uh, were very keen to come on board, and they actually bought up a lot of our small original shareholders. And so there's just the original, the, the, the two people, the two families that started the company, the Furlongs and the Morgans, in now with 25% and Mahindra owned 75%. But they're funding uh, the whole family of air vans that we originally envisaged. The, the next aircraft is a 10, stretch it to 10 seats with a Rolls-Royce 450 horsepower turboprop engine. And then the spin-off of that will be the Lycoming 350 engine, 350 horsepower, uh, which will be going to be certified on MoGas, electronic control. Excellent. So that's the other program that's going along. And then when I first started work in the late 60s, early 70s at government aircraft factories, and I was involved in the G- GAF Nomad from day one. And we always said if we could ever get hold of that aeroplane, we could make a good aeroplane out of it. Never did I believe that one day the Australian <laughs> government would come along to us and say, we would like you to take this over. So we did. I, I didn't realise that the government came to you guys. Yeah, well, they, I mean, really, who else in Australia did they have that could do it? Yeah. yeah so it wasn't a hard choice on their part, but we could have said no. But we accepted the challenge and Mahindra have come on board and done world market surveys. And there is quite a large market gap, a bit below the Twin Otter. Mm. Uh, and there's quite a market gap there in that class of aeroplane. Very good short takeoff and landing aeroplane. The aeroplane will be redesigned to meet all the latest uh, safety and flight standards. And we should have our first one to market in about two, two and a half years. So we're, we're very much flat out at the moment. Yeah. Well, that'll be great because we're, we're, we're big fans of the Nomad. It's a beautiful looking little aircraft for what it does. Uh, you know, it's, it's not quite like some that are boxy but good. It's, it's got function and it, it does it. It's, it's a shame it was uh, like left aside because it was one of the big Aussie aircraft at the time. Yes, well, the government did only ever want to build, you know, about seven or eight for the Army as an interim idling defence project. Uh, but then the army wanted more, uh, and and then various other military outfits around the world wanted them, and then it was certified to, to the then civilian standards, and those civilian operators that still have them liked them very much, and in fact they're the first people lining up for the new version of it, uh, particularly uh, air safaris in um, in New Zealand. Uh, you were actually buying one of their old ones back to give us the quickest track to. Uh, uh, a new prototype you know, that, that we, we will you know, show compliance with certification requirements and then they, they are going to be the first customer for a new one to replace the you Nomad. Know, so, uh, Excellent. Yeah, so the people that have them, a great profitable aeroplane um, and they're very much looking forward to the new version. Yeah. Is there anything else you can tell us about? If you've, we've got the GA8 going well. There's the GA10 with a turbine engine and the 350 Lycoming and the GA18, a.k.a. Nomad, with twin turboprops. Uh, anything else you're allowed to tell us, or is it all pretty hush-hush? Oh, well, we built for... Uh, there was a joint venture arrangement between the first acquisition by Mahindra into aerospace, which was a company called Plexion, um, and that's now the Mahindra Bangalore office, and they designed jointly with the National Aerospace Laboratories, which is a government outfit, much like our um, um, our, RD, or our research development unit um, down at Fisherman's Bend used to be many years ago. Um, and we've been asked to build that prototype, which we have. We started in January, and we're going to fly it in the next couple of weeks. That's why I have to head home Friday night from Moshkosh here, unfortunately. I'd rather stay till Sunday night. But 
we'll have that in the air shortly and the plans for that is when we get it all sorted out as an aeroplane uh, it will go back and be built in India but all our aircraft will remain built in Australia so and then Mahindra Aerospace themselves are into uh, um, a lot more projects uh, in India the Indian government's been I think fairly smart in saying all the new airliners we buy, whether it be Boeing or Airbus and all the new military aeroplanes we buy, no matter who we get them from, 50% of that purchase or those purchases, which is billions of dollars, will be offset into India. Oh, that's uh, Mahindra, yes, very smart. And Mahindra are positioning to uh, be a part supplier to those programs. So that'll be part of the Indian operation. So there's, there's a lot more going on, but it's quite exciting times. and. I think the decision we made to change gears and become part of a multinational company was the right one and we're certainly forging ahead. So we're very much enjoying it and looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, congratulations for that. And it's great to see that you're uh, still with the company and continuing along from the very beginning to now that it's kicking into a higher gear. Uh, very happy to have you still with the company and congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Karthik Krishnamurthy, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. And uh, you're from uh, Mahindra Mahindra. I'm technically from Mahindra Aerospace Private okay. Limited, a part of the Mahindra Group. And uh, recently Mahindra Group uh, and Mahindra Aerospace purchased into uh, Gippsland Aeronautics. That's right. It was about June last year, I believe. We closed the transaction in June last year. And uh, so now the new company is Gips Aero. That's correct. And uh, if you could give us a bit of a discussion about uh, what Mahindra Aerospace uh, were looking for and, sure. and uh, why they selected Gips, Gippsland Aeronautics. Okay. Uh, let's start with Mahindra and Mahindra. The group is a 12 billion US dollars in revenues last year. It's quite diversified and it's into about uh, 12 different uh, industry sectors. The group is in uh, 100 plus countries, 120,000 employees approximately, and uh, like I said, 12 billion dollars last year. As part of the diversification, the group decided that aerospace was a interesting frontier. This was way back in uh, 2006, 2007, around that time. And we spent a good amount of time looking at the different parts of the aerospace industry, the aerospace value chain, and uh, decided that there were two areas that we would want to be involved in. And one of them was uh, aerospace component manufacture, that's aerostructures, which is dedicated aerostructures only. And the other was the really interesting part of utility aircraft, which is two to 20 seat general aviation airplanes, but not the business jets and the luxury airplanes of the world. These are utility airplanes which carry boxes and people, maybe a combination, and they really are the working, the workhorses of the fleet. And so we looked around to see what kind of uh, capability would be required to make a mark. And uh, through a combination of uh, various opportunities, we came to know about Gipsero, Gipsland Aeronautics as it used to be, and we found a very good fit between the kind of product line that Gipsero is committed to and our own interest in the utility aircraft world. Definitely. Workspace. And so one thing led to another, and in, uh, as of the middle of last year, we closed the acquisition, and we are now the majority owner. Mind Aerospace is the majority owner of uh, Gipsero PTY. And uh, where do you see it all going now? It's uh, good to be uh, bullish, and it's good to be optimistic, and we definitely are very, very enthusiastic. The whole group is behind this interest, and uh, we see a lot of opportunity in uh, all the growing economies for a utility airplane. We are also very clear that it should be a utility aircraft portfolio. It's not a one airplane business. It should not be a one model business. And so we are committed to developing the whole two to 20 seat portfolio. Gipsero, of course, already has the eight GA8 airvan. 
in two flavors, the normally aspirated and the turbocharged. Gibson already has the egg aircraft, not in production today, but the GA200. It used to be in production earlier. In India, we have a program to develop a five-seater in a partnership model with India's premier aerospace R&D lab, National Aerospace Laboratories. So that's a five-seater that's work on in India. And uh, we have a plan, as you might have seen in the media already or talked to Gibson already, about a 10-seater, the single-engine turboprop 10-seater. Yeah. And, of course, a uh, highly modified yet uh, improved version of what's an old aircraft from the Australian portfolio. The classic Nomad. The classic Nomad. But we will we will be rechristening it as a GA-18 yeah. because there's going to be a lot of changes to it. Yep. No, it's looking very... I'm very excited to see the Nomad coming back. There's That's right. Not just Australian pride. It was a, a very cool-looking aircraft. That's right. Yep. Okay. And uh, so do you see further... Are you able to talk about further plans uh, beyond Gipsero? Of course, a uh, $12 billion group is not going to let us sit on our audits. They will ask us to be, uh, we do have to think of our plans going beyond the 2 to 20 seater range. We do have a lot of opportunities knocking on the door, which obviously we don't have liberty to talk about yet. Um, we have lots of opportunities because of the Indian context. India is becoming one of the world's biggest consumers of aerospace and defense products going over the next 10, 15 years. Um, so there's a lot of interest from the Indian marketplace. And uh, for us, it's more of a uh, global opportunity to couple what India is good at engineering and uh, manufacturing, what Australia has got great capabilities on in general aviation. The Avans a unique aircraft, unique in the portfolio, unique in the world. Very excited about how to bring uh, Gipsero skill sets yeah. into a global platform across multiple airplanes. Okay. So we'll be uh, working together with Gipsero in the production facility in Latrobe Valley. So you see, you see the Latrobe Valley production facility expanding? Uh, um, definitely. Definitely. Okay. Thank you very much for coming on the show. You're we really, really appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Rod Rackett, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. I understand that you've been driving the uh, air van. Yeah, that's right. In the last couple of weeks, I've been checked out to fly the GA with the Civil Air Patrol, did their transition uh, training program, and have uh, just under 12 hours in the airframe. And how do you find it? Oh, it's a great bird. Yeah. Uh, it's rugged, it's capable, it's quite easy to fly for someone who's transitioned up for the Cessna 182. No big surprises there. It even uh, handles uh, uh, things like putting it on grass when I don't fly on grass regularly, but did that as part of my check ride. And it, and it does it um, with, with style and grace because no one knows what the thing is when you pull up on the ramp. <laughs> yeah, it does get a few looks, doesn't it? Yeah, we we almost invariably get a, uh, uh, a comment on the frequency when we when we come on the uh, the CTAF um, or uh, when we check in on the frequency with Center because they usually ask us, "Is that a caravan?" Mm-hmm. And my response, of course, is not quite, <laughs> almost, but not quite. Yes. So, how do you find its load hauling capabilities, its performance, things like that? Well, the reason why the CAP bought its fleet of air vans was they they, they needed the capability to swap seats for sensors. We have a hyperspectral imaging system that is very capable, but pretty bulky, and it's just not going to fit in our fleet of Skylanes. So uh, we have, I believe it's 16 airframes in the CAP to be able to provide um, that uh, very specialized uh, sensor uh, platform. Now, when we're not using it as a sensor platform, we put the seats in and use it as a people hauler. And how do you find it goes as people and freight and all that? Great. Unfortunately, I had to uh, start investing in more headsets when I fly it because I I suddenly had more people than headsets for the first time. (laughs) 
But uh, beyond that, um, you know, we've uh, used it for being able to put more eyes on target when we use it in the SAR capability, or even if we just need to be, move people around, um, being able to can reconfigure it very quickly. Sometimes we have to mix people and cargo. Uh, sometimes it's just hauling, uh, you know, people around, and it does a great job of that. You know, the light you know, aircraft role of civil air patrol uh, matches up really great with uh, the very, you know, the very capable aircraft that it is. Now, learning to fly it, um, again, only, you know, it wasn't a, a, a tough transition. Um, learning to fly an airplane that is part tractor, part farm equipment, uh, really was a was a, was a, was a different experience for a guy like me, uh, but I've enjoyed it a lot because uh, people think it's a cool bird. Okay, now very quickly about yourself, Rod. How many hours have you got? What kind of aircraft have you flown? So I'm uh, pretty typical single engine commercial with uh, instrument rating, 750 hours or so total time. Been flying with Civil Air Patrol for the last 10 years, and. Um, recently just got in a position where I had things align where they needed me to you know take on this new flying gig so uh, most of my flying is in Cessna 182s uh, 172s I fly uh, sometimes I fly the DA40 so really you know I'm nothing special really I just uh, uh, able to you know put my flying skills to work for the CAP and to serve my community and uh, the airvan's a, a new tool for that. Rod, thanks for telling us about the event. Oh, thanks for having me. Have a great day. Safe travels. Well, there we go, guys. And, uh, yeah, okay, yes, that was uh, from a year ago we recorded those, but uh, fantastic interviews. And uh, George Morgan, he's done a lot for aviation, uh, well, here in Victoria, uh, Grant, and I'll tell you what, the Gibbs Aero, uh, since we recorded that interview, uh, they are really kicking goals. In fact, I see another press release out today that they're, uh, they've actually signed a, an agreement with a dealership in Mexico. That's right, mate. They're really uh, extending the Gibbs Aero aircraft around the world. The GA8 is going fantastic. The GA10's juice soon and uh, their rebuilt Nomad is still being ticked along so it's great to see the guys doing so well it's uh, always cool to do a little bit of a memory lane look back and I gotta say it was a pretty intense time when we recorded all that and it's been pretty full-on since that uh, trying to get the time to finish editing everything else from Oshkosh 11. Oh, yeah, we recorded those interviews uh, for Gibbs Aero last year, and uh, they've, they've actually got their own edits of those, which I believe they've used uh, for their own purposes. But, uh, yeah, we were going to run that in a uh, for another little project that we had, but uh, I think it's high time we ran them, and uh, it gives a bit of an insight into how these corporate events work, I think, too. I mean, there was a lot of that going on at Oshkosh. Ben, I, I guess you would have uh, seen a fair bit of uh, dealing and moving and shaking going on. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of that, and, uh, you know, just your inbox uh, when you it, uh, <laughs> the media, the media accreditation your inbox rapidly fills up with uh, all these invites to uh, add to your list of things that you don't have enough time to do in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I, I did actually get the Osh Planner app. Oh, isn't that great? And loaded it up before it even left. And I think I looked at it once when I was there. Interesting to hear that interview there that you did with Rod Rackick. There, we actually recorded that uh, at Potapalooza, if memory serves. A lot of background noise going on there, Grant. A lot of podcasters and friends drinking beer. It was great. Yeah, but uh, good to hear that uh, Rod enjoys flying the uh, the GA8. And I'm sure since we recorded that interview, he's got uh, several more hours in it since then. He'd only just done his uh, conversion. Uh, Damien, have you had a chance to uh, get near an air van up your way? No, I haven't. I saw an air van while I was out at uh, William Creek. Got a few photos of it there and had a bit of a bow peep. And 
um, and got some footage of it taking off, but I haven't been up close and personal, haven't sat inside one. I'll tell you what, I was up out at the factory there a few months ago, uh, out there at uh, Morwell in Victoria. Uh, actually, I was there with Owen's up that day while Owen was doing some uh, some work there for Australian Aviation Magazine, and uh, the, their production line there, they're, they're really cranked up. They're, they're pumping those aircraft out. A lot of them going off to India, actually. Uh, it's actually each aircraft that comes down the production line there has got the uh, flag of the uh, country it's going to, and uh, many coming here to Australia, of course, but uh, a lot going to India, I noticed, and uh, plenty going over there to the US. So a uh, fantastic success story. I mean, uh, Gips Aero, they're not a current sponsor of this show, but uh, they certainly have been in the past, and uh, we, we certainly like to uh, to talk about them because they are very successful. All right, somebody else that's also successful in the uh, mail delivery department uh, is coming down our street, almost the midnight posty. Oh, mate, the midnight posty rides again. Well, it's not midnight up there in Brisbane. No. Well, a, I, know it's, I know it's only 11.30 here, but, you know, I got up early, so it feels like it's past midnight to me. Oh, dear. Actual printed out listener email. I even printed out two copies so that Ben could have his own. Oh, wow. And uh, here's an email that came in uh, just before we started recording, actually, and it says, Greetings from Warneet. Now, uh, Warneet, it's about uh, 15 minutes away from the studio here, actually. It's uh, not far away. And it's from Steve Davis. He says, Hi, guys. I've been a PCDU listener for a long time now. I wanted to pass on my thanks for such an informative and entertaining show. Well, uh, Steve, we'd like to uh, pass on thanks to you for your good taste. Yeah, and the check is in the mail. Now, this is dedication. He said, I've even updated my car radio for USB so I can listen in the car while driving to and from work every day. That is awesome, mate. That is dedication. That's that's pretty well done, and, and uh, hopefully that USB connector doesn't uh, lock him down to one particular kind of phone or tablet or iThing or anything, so he's future-proofing himself. So long as it has USB, it'll work. Now, Steve goes on to say here in this email that he's ex-RAF, a grand engineer, and uh, has had a go a couple of times, but it looks here at getting his uh, PPL, but uh, like many of us, has had to sort of walk away from it uh, here and there. In fact, uh, he actually said he walked away the first time uh, when his instructor was uh, tragically killed in an accident. So well, I guess that would uh, shake you up, particularly if you're a uh, student pilot. I know it would shake me up. Definitely. Uh, now, he's not sure, uh, he says here, whether he wants to have another attempt at uh, getting his GA. Well, uh, what, what do you think of that, guys? I, I think um, you should at least uh, try for his R. I mean, uh, Steve, if you're at Warneet, you're about five minutes away from Turidan. Great school there. Indeed. And I'd definitely say the same thing. I think if I was to replay my time over again, or if I was to get into this, say, in another 10 years, then I couldn't see any reason why you wouldn't fly RAOs, A, for the cost, effectiveness of it, but B, some of those aircraft are awesome with their performance and so forth. Oh, yeah, and the level of technology, I mean, we've talked about this many times on the program. I mean, the level of technology in that category now is is phenomenal. Totally. They, I mean, the performance-wise, they can stop all over the venerable 172. Now, don't pick on 172s, you guys. I love 172s. Well, I'm not picking on it, but it's, I mean, it's it's like the usual thing. A GA aircraft, you, uh, if it's a four-seater, really, you can take two people with a bit of luggage and fuel. I love the 172 as well, but some of the performance out of some of these RAOs aircraft, you just, you can't beat. Bang for yeah. buck, they're brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, with the right endorsements on it, sure, you can take a mate and you can go through controlled airspace, you can go cross-country. That's what flying's about. If that's what you're in it for, if you're in it just to be up in the air and be enjoying it, then I think it's a, a very cost-effective means of, of aviation. Well, I still think I'm going to go and do my RALs conversion eventually once I get some money spare. But, uh, well, well, Steve here is talking actually about ultralights as well. He's uh, he's had a bit of fun with a thruster way back in the 90s, and uh, he's uh, asked us to uh, give us some detail on how ultralights fit into the airspace regulations here in Australia, with perhaps a comparison in the USA and UK. And Well, hi, Ben. Uh, how do the ultralights fit in? We don't talk to ultralights. Oh. No, no, we do. Um, 
we don't have that much interaction with the VFRs, so uh, I don't have that much control airspace to actually control them with. But uh, you know, we we hear more and more these days. You're hearing uh, you know Jabiru numbers call signs coming up. So uh, the uh, RA movement is alive and kicking. I can certainly tell you that. I've got an interview coming up very shortly um, with the gentleman that I'm doing my flight review with who's the director of the recreational aviation company at Gympie. So I can pose these questions to him and, and perhaps get some answers out of him. So, Steve, thank you. we really appreciate you writing in and uh, great timing too, mate. Uh, I don't know whether you saw our Facebook uh, post as we said we were recording tonight and you, you sent this off or whether it's just coincidence, but either way, it was great timing and uh, to get that uh, into the show uh, tonight. So uh, keep listening. Uh, Damien will uh, find those uh, answers out for you and we'll have those interviews for you uh, in an upcoming episode, probably a couple of episodes away from now because, uh, boy, have we got a corker lined up for the next one after this. But uh, more about that later. Now, our second one here is uh, from Brian Judd. Now, Brian's over in Kentucky. You may remember uh, an episode or two back we read Brian's email out. Now, uh, Brian's written back to us and said it made his day. So we're going to make your day again, uh, Brian. We're going to read your follow-up email out. Now, he's got a very important question here for all Australian listeners. It's not aviation-related, but uh, he's trying to find out about RC Draft Collar. That's RC, Romeo Charlie. Romeo Charlie. Now, um, Just in case you're wondering. Yes. Now, I can't remember drinking RC Cola here in Australia since the 1970s, I reckon, when I was uh, eating fish and chips and watching Paul Hogan on a Sunday night. Now, according to his research, uh, he says that it's uh, for sale in Australia, New Zealand and France. Now, I don't know that we have any listeners in France, but we certainly have listeners here in Australia and over in uh, New Zealand. Gee whiz, I have no idea. I, I, does anybody on the panel here tonight know where they could get RC Cola? Do they brew it up there at Bundaberg? Someone told me they brew it up at Bundaberg. I've uh, never heard it before. I mean, I've ROC Coca-Cola in that um, uh, song back in the 60s. I remember it being referenced, but I think I'm a little bit too young. I don't remember Paul Hogan on the TV, Steve. Well, actually, that's, that's un- un-Australian, un-Australian. I've seen reruns. I've seen reruns. But um, look, I, you, you lie, McCarran. You lie. I don't, yeah, I, anyhow, I wasn't in the country back then. That's all right. Um, ben wasn't even born then. I was, I was yeah, going to say, what? while well, you two guys are carbon dating yourselves there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I may edit that bit out. Anyway. <laughs> but, uh, no, look, I've got to say, I always thought RC Cola was a, you know, like it was it was a casualty of the Cola Wars, you know, like, oh, you, know, you fought the Empire in the Cola Wars? Yeah, I was an RC trooper, you know. No, I thought it was gone. But I'm just looking at Wikipedia and I'm, I'm seeing RC Cola Zero in 2009, RC Kick and RC Dracola. That sounds like Dracula, but that's uh, for the British market. Oh, yes, and it's for Halloween. There you go. That's why it's Dracula. Oh, there you go. But, um, yeah, I've never really seen it. I'm looking at the images and can't see uh, say I've seen it and you know honestly it's not coke so I'd probably just go right over the top of it yeah there you go okay playing crazy down under at gmail.com an urgent uh, call out to our listeners anywhere in Australia if you can find RC Cola and uh, Brian is uh, <laughs> offering to pay the freight if we can ship some over to him you know uh, having lived in Arkansas for a couple of years they used to talk about uh, drinking RCs and eating moon pies RCs and moon pies and Brian's in Kentucky so he probably knows more about that than I do I've just had a look on the RC Cola international.com website and it is saying that it's Bundaberg Brewed Drinks have it here in Australia, but there is a place in America that's spelt C-O-T-T, and that appears that they might brew it there as well. So if you head off to um, all the W's, .rccolainternational.com, 
I dare say you'll find where you can get it. You well, go. now, uh, Bundaberg is a considerable distance away from where you are. I'm taking it, uh, Damien. Oh, it's about a two-and-a-half-hour drive, but I'm sure, you know, it'd give me an excuse to jump in the 172 and skip up there in about an hour. Oh, there you go. Well, see, we're finding all sorts of work for that 172 for you. That's it. That'll be <laughs> so thanks very much. We've received a, a few other emails there, and uh, we couldn't get to them in this show uh, this evening, but uh, we'll certainly make sure that we write back to those of uh, you who were kind enough to write in, and we're getting a lot more uh, traffic in the email inbox these days, which is very encouraging. And uh, thanks to all of you for your kind words. We, we really do appreciate it. Uh, it gives us lots more energy, Grant, doesn't it, to uh, get on and make more shows? Oh, it certainly does, mate. Uh, it's uh, I mean, you know, nothing quite like a can of Red Bull or Mother to kick in, but uh, reading reading these these emails, it's been pretty good, actually. There's, there's quite a few. I can wake up in the morning, go through the, the latest ones that have come in and go, hey, charged up for the day. Okay, uh, let's move on to uh, some announcements and some shout-outs. Now, uh, a bit of an announcement slash shout-out uh, would be for our friends down at uh, Aussie Services at Turidan here in uh, Victoria, and uh, they've got their uh, their annual open day coming up on December 1st and 2nd, and uh, they're just all going to be all sorts Lots of fun going on down there. We're going to be down there with the mobile studio doing our thing because now we know how to do it. We, we're pretty confident we can do it again. Uh, we'll, no, we'll look. Now, see. Now, now Alan's figured it all out. That's we're right. Confident uh, we can do it again. Alan yes. Van Page, our, uh, our multi-talented uh, mobile studio operator, and of course we've got Ben here, who's got form as a designated microphone holder. I was talking to Matt Hall the other day, and uh, he has very generously agreed to uh, dispatch uh, one of his aircraft down there for the day, and he's offering joy flights. Now we need to get at least ten flights booked if you've ever wanted to get up in a uh, a Matt Hall racing aircraft and uh, get thrown around the skies or do any sort of aerobatics. Matt's not going to be able to come himself, but he is sending down Dan O'Donnell, and uh, Dan O'Donnell is currently a uh, Hornet driver in the RAF, so uh, don't worry about that. He can uh, throw it around the sky every bit as well as uh, Matt can. So uh, just head off to uh, matthallracing.com if you'd like to book seats. Uh, we're pretty confident we can fill those 10 flights, but, uh, you know, at least 10 and uh, many more. Uh, it is $650 for the flight, but, uh, hey, it's Christmas time, folks, and uh, if you're into aviation, you must be if you're listening to this show. Highly recommended. It'd be money well spent. Indeed. I, I'm seriously considering squirreling some money away and uh, going myself, you know, <laughs> like, whoa, that would be a good Christmas present to me. Okay, moving on. Uh, our next shout out here. We haven't mentioned these people for a long time, but uh, we're going to talk about Robert E. Coli at there at uh, Thromby Air. Now, uh, the Thromby Air Art Department, Grant, they've been very, very busy lately. Uh, you know, they should be designing posters for their own airline, but in fact, they've been doing uh, more cartoons of us. Indeed. Uh, Thromby Air, the cheapest of the cheap, the lowest of the low. They treat everyone equally badly. Absolutely. But and they love it. Uh, they love it and they hope you love it. But the best thing I think that Thromby's ever done is their art department. Absolutely fantastic. And uh, folks, if you're on our uh, Facebook page, Grant, we actually should put that on the uh, on the homepage as well. I think the latest picture they did showing our uh, multi talented sound engineer Alan Van Page and uh, he actually had him done up there as a Ganesh with about uh, multi-armed twi- multi-armed uh, <laughs> trying to keep that mobile studio running while Grant and I were relaxing doing air show commentary and uh, I'll tell you what I think that's exactly what Alan was doing up there at, uh, <laughs> at Ozfly so uh, fantastic work really great stuff and he's actually been doing some artwork for our friends over at the Airplane Geeks as well Robert E. Coli Thromby Air great artwork going on and also apparently they've got a bit of an aviation apparel thing going absolutely fighter jocks fighterjocks.com that's J-O-X and uh, yeah the guys over there at the Thromby Art Department I don't know whether Robert E. Coli actually knows this but uh, I think his art department might be uh, moonlighting on the side there Grant and uh, they've started a uh, little uh, aviation uh, themed apparel company so uh, yeah there's some pretty good stuff over there fighterjocks.com and there'll be links in the show notes make sure you support these guys Uh, they have a lot of fun but uh, they're out there supporting us and really supporting aviation and uh, those guys do a really fantastic job okay now Damien we mentioned earlier about the Caboolture Warplane Museum they're having their antique day on Sunday 
Sunday, November 18th. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, you're heading up there and uh, they are trying to raise uh, some money to get the Haas Caribou to come up as well. Yeah, I understand. That would be uh, amazing if they could get it up there. It would be certainly worthwhile to see. I've only ever seen the Caribou static at uh, Oki and I saw it fly when I was a young fella at a RAF air show at Amberley where they did the usual trundle down the runway on the nose gear. Uh, the wheelbarrow. Yeah, that's the one. Absolutely. Now, uh, our listener up there at Wollongong, Josh Bullitt, he's been doing a few rides on the Haas Caribou, but uh, they actually suffered an engine failure recently and uh, had an engine out situation. So I know they've been working pretty hard there to replace that engine and it looks like they're going to have the plane up and running if they haven't already got it back in the air by now. That's right. I think Josh may have jinxed it because he was referring to another aircraft as uh, being just a mobile engine accident waiting to happen. Um, when lo and behold oops they had one themselves on the caribou so caution there mate you can bring it back upon yourself but uh, it all seemed to be um, be being handled reasonably well okay now obviously the caribous are not cheap aircraft to run so they're looking for about twenty thousand dollars now that's a big ask we know but they are looking for some corporate sponsorship i think to get the Haas caribou up there you can find out uh, more about that at kabultrawarplanemuseum.com and uh, even if the caribou doesn't make it up there that's certainly an event that uh, sounds like a lot of fun and uh, well worth attending and uh, as you mentioned damien you're going to uh, shoot up there yourself and grab some interviews hopefully yeah i'll get onto whoever i can there to um to get some interesting content for the show I and mean, interestingly there's quite a few aircraft there that you can uh, take adventure flights in so i dare say in the near future i'll um be shedding out some of my own cold hard cash to uh more than likely take the opportunity to go up in a p51 i think that'll be the pick of the aircraft oh, awesome <laughs> Such a hard task to uh, oh, consign oh. yourself to. <laughs> Someone's got to do it, guys. It's, it's wow. hard. Oh. I say, I say these words to you: Tiger Moth, Nang Chang, Wirraway, Mustang. Which one do you go with? Yeah, I know which one I go with. Yes, everyone. That's kind of where I go, three of these things belong together. You know the <laughs> uh, No, that's that's where you go. That sounds like my definition of a fun day. Start with a Tiger Moth and work your way up. Way up, yeah, very good. In fact, I've noticed here they actually do type conversion and training on the Wirraway. Now that's really appealing. Type yeah. conversion. Mustang would be like a dream come true, but it'd be an insurance nightmare, I'm sure. I'm never again voicing on my podcast my thoughts on the we're away. No, 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 no. That's the windshield. Oh, that's right. Yes. Well, yes. Yes. We're, we're, we're away good, windshield bad. Oh, okay. Good. Ah. Well, in, in Steve's mind, anyway. Okay. Yeah. P50. They do have, P50. A, they do have a. a Flying windshield there as well, but it's not uh, part of the adventure flight from the looks of it. No, you couldn't have an adventure flight in one of those. You'd fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, that's, and there that's it is, it. ladies and gentlemen. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> Steve at southernskiesmedia.com.au. I, I was, was going to say, yes, that, that's, that's capital V. Vision V. I. <laughs> and that that is the gauntlet. If there are any windshield owners out there, let's see if we can keep Steve awake through some aerobatics in the windshield. I, I I think we could give him a bit of a run for his money. Look, you go in the windshield, I'll go in the Mustang when Damien comes back. I think you've just been grossly insulting to everyone who enjoys nice flying a windshield. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I am. But, you know, I'm Dutch, so I can get away with it. Yeah, well, there is always that. <laughs> But uh, I think I think if there's any windjill owners out there, um, yeah, I think we should put Steve through his paces and see just how much he loves the um, aerobatic G-forces. I'm up for it. I'm up for it. Hey, pass me your desktop flight planner. Hey! <laughs> you won't be needing that anymore. Not when you have this. Ooh, iPad. Uh-huh, with AvPlan. 
AvPlan is a complete flight planner and EFB tool for iPad or iPhone. You can use it for VFR and IFR, and it has NAPES integration for weather and NOTAMs and unique weather overlays on your maps. Produce fast, professional flight plans and have unparalleled situational awareness during flight with AvPlan from Avsoft. You can download it now from iTunes or visit avsoft.com.au. AvPlan. More in your EFB. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. Hi, I'm Stephen Forrest from the Airspeed Podcast, and when I'm not producing a show, I'm listening to guys who are inverted all the time. Plane crazy down under. Okay, moving on, Ben. Uh, you've popped something here into the uh, planning screen about uh, some changes at Air Services Australia. Planning amendments. What's this all about? Now, this is all part of Flight Plan 2012. Uh, this is a big, it's not only limited to air services, it's a global thing. Uh, ICAO is changing the the, uh, the flight plan form that we uh, have all become familiar with is, uh, through our pilot training. And uh, the alphabet soup for all your equipment codes is actually getting a lot larger. Oh, uh, right. They've, they've finally uh, bitten the bullet over at ICAO and uh, going to update the form now. It's going to include some codes for uh, things like GPS, SARNAV and, uh, and all these other things. Uh, a lot of it is actually what they call PBN or performance-based navigation. PBN is to uh, take advantage of all the capabilities now that you have with GPS navigation or uh, a GNSS as we're calling it now because the Russian uh, GLONASS satellites are coming online as well and the European Galileo systems. So, uh, and there's an, the Chinese are putting one up as well. I believe they are too, yeah. Everyone's yep. getting in on this this global satellite thing. So, uh, it's getting crowded up there. It's going to get crowded up there, but uh, it's giving us uh, the ability now that we can have uh, receivers that can listen to more than one satellite constellation. Yep. And as part of this uh, now with the, the modern technology that even you get in, yeah, in your average uh, Cirrus or uh, even 162 these days, it has the, the capability to take advantage of these performance-based navigation if it meets certain criteria. So we're, we're moving all towards that. You can and be lost with amazing accuracy now. That's exactly right. So as part of this, uh, we're doing all, all the uh, the flight planning changes. So some of the codes are changing and uh, the meaning of some are changing. So if you uh, are putting flight plans in, uh, the uh, the cutover date is the 15th of November. That's the uh, the next AIRAC date. And uh, if you uh, haven't heard about any of this, uh, you need to get over to uh, the Air Services Australia website, which is uh, www.airservicesaustralia.com. And uh, you can follow the uh, the links there through to uh, the ICAO flight planning amendment, and uh, we'll have the link in the show notes as well. That'll take you straight to the uh, the ICAO flight planning amendment page on the Air Services website. I believe it was also mentioned in the CASA briefing uh, email that went out. The CASA briefing there was a number of items in there, and I'm pretty sure that there was reference to the uh, need to change the flight plan forms. Yes, they've put that out as well, and uh, I ordered it today as well. There is a booklet that CASA has uh-huh. put out. That you can get from the CASA online store that actually explains uh, the changes as far as flight crew endorsements and uh, aircraft approvals as well. So uh, if you own or fly an aeroplane, you, uh, as somebody used to say uh, in this country, do yourself a favour and get that. 
because uh, you need to be uh, up on all this sort of thing, especially uh, not for VFR so much, but if you fly night VFR or if you fly IFR and you uh, have a GPS uh, navigation endorsement or a, uh, or a GPS approach endorsement, then uh, you need to be across these changes uh, to work out uh, what you uh, are supposed to be putting in your flight plan. Going there right now, Ben. Okay, Ben, and while you've got the floor here, uh, you've got some shout-outs from Oshkosh that you'd like to go through. I had to put this in there. Um, I have to give some shout-outs to uh, people that I met, uh, not only at Oshkosh, but uh, on my uh, grand tour of the USA. First and foremost is uh, David Vanderhoof, uh, the official historian for PCDU. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he, he, also, he also co-chairs for that other podcast that's over there. But uh, Yes. He's our <laughs> US Bureau Chief. That's how I address all the mail that I send to him. <laughs> but uh, Dave, David uh, took took time out to uh, to get up very, very early one morning and uh, come up and meet me in New York. And we went and saw the Intrepid Museum. And uh, amongst other things, we spent the day up there uh, finishing uh, with uh, dinner in Little Italy with Robert Sigliano, actually. Oh, Rob Sigliano. Cool. So uh, that was a, a very enjoyable day. And then uh, David uh, also, uh, thanks to uh, AOPA, managed to make it out to uh, to Oshkosh as well. So we got to spend a bit more time there going and seeing the uh, all the uh, the field of yellow. That was down yeah. at the, uh, the the southern end of uh, of Oshkosh there yeah. with uh, quite a few more cubs than I've ever seen in one place at one time. <laughs> Where are you? I'm next to the yellow cub. Oh, what a shock. So am I. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Uh, now the uh, the next shout out is to uh, to Rob Mark. Hey, this is Rob Mark from Jetwine.com. Oh, not him again. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the, Rob was kind enough to let me stay at the, at the Chateau Jetwine uh, yes. with the uh, the man formerly known as Dan Webb. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, I remember that kid. Yeah, that, and Simba. And and Sim- Simba the Wonder Dog was still there. Yes, and. Uh, it's, he's now found a new best friend because I think uh, Mr. Webbage got to be uh, Simba's new favourite. <laughs> but not lunch, not obviously. Not very happy about that, Dan Webb. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, so uh, thanks thanks to Rob for uh, for putting up with, well, not one airplane geek, but uh, two for the night. Now, it's going to be a long laundry list, this one. But uh, Aunt Benet, I met at uh, Oshkosh, and she was very happy that I had my AOPA membership card with me. Oh, yes. I got extra brownie points the for aviation, that one, I think. The aviation queen herself. Yes, the aviation queen herself, uh, now that she uh, works for AOPA. So uh, she was very happy that I had my AOPA membership with me. Next uh, is David Phil, who's uh, at David Phil on Twitter. He just uh, treated me to a, a flight in his Arrow 4. We went up to Appleton and back uh, just for the purposes of nothing other than saying, I've flown to Oshkosh. <laughs> um, and uh, we flew the procedure. So uh, that just shows the the power of Twitter and uh, the friendship and camaraderie you get at uh, Oshkosh. Whereas uh, a, a guy I'd met two days earlier uh, said, yeah, yeah, come on, we'll go for a fly. And uh, David's offsider and uh, business partner, Brandy LAX, uh, Brandy LAX on Twitter gave me a, a couple of contacts into her past actually and uh, managed to organise a tour for me to see the uh, operations side of uh, Portland Airport that's uh, the PDX airport in, uh, in the US and that was uh, that was good fun just to see the actual operations side of the airport which I don't have anything to do with these days um, but that was a good insight there and last but not least is uh, my uh, camping buddy Dave Allen, Dave Flies on Twitter, and uh, and the rest of the Camp Bacon crew. Um, you guys were awesome, and I'm trying to work out how I can actually get over there again. And unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to have a six-week vacation this time around. I'm hopefully going to be able to work out a way to get over there for the week again, but uh, we'll have to yeah. see if that actually eventuates. See, that's what happens. That's the worst thing about Oshkosh 
is the fact that now you've been, you want to go every year. This, this, is, this is the problem, man. It's a yeah. heck of a long way from here to Oshkosh. You know, we've set a precedent now. I mean, you know, I want to say to all our, our podcasting brethren over there in the in the US now, Team PCDU has been over to your part of the world twice now, and I'm just saying that Avalon 2013 is coming up, guys. True, true. Just, just putting it out true. there. Not, just, just not putting... quite the same scope or anything like that, but, yeah, come on down. Um, It's not quite the same camping on sites but come on down yeah yeah i mean we wouldn't we wouldn't for instance uh you know rope david allen into being a video editor or anything like that no <laughs> we wouldn't do that to him at all anyway moving on let's go across to the shaky Isles. want to offer a shout out here to our uh, friend of the podcast errol cavett who sends us lots of very very interesting emails from all sorts of things that are going on over there and uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to uh, one that he sent here now uh, if you're not haven't been keeping up with the uh, kiwi aviation news things are not happy over there at the moment with some uh, massive fee hikes announced by their government uh, over there uh, with regard to user fees. Now, well, we're obviously very anti-user fees here, but uh, and they're, they're bad enough here in Australia, and they're certainly uh, diabolical over there in Europe, but uh, they're pretty steep in uh, New Zealand, and uh, Grant, some fees are going up like 300%. Oh, it's just nuts. User fees kill aviation. End story. That's it. Absolutely. Now, to our American listeners, how often do we say this? Listen closely and follow all the show notes and all the links here, folks, if you're over in the US. Your government would love to introduce user fees. They would. You all know it. Make sure it doesn't happen. Get together, get with AOPA and all the alphabet groups there and uh, make sure what's happened to us over here doesn't happen to you because, uh, like Grant says, once they're here, they're they're not going anywhere. That's right, mate. It's the death knell for aviation at the general and low end. It's it's the quickest way of uh, keeping aircraft out of the sky, which, of course, makes the sky safer. So for those agencies that don't have to promote aviation but just have to make it safer, they've done their job. Now, it's a very long shout-out list here, but uh, we we can't uh, finish up here without sending a big shout-out across there to the US to our good friend Charlie Wilworth from Flight Time Radio. Charlie is uh, battling cancer at the moment, and uh, I think he's having a bit of a rough ride with it. We know he's uh, had some bone marrow transplants and uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, It's been a pretty intense time for him. He's actually looks like he's going to be out of, uh, as he's calling it, Camp Mayo pretty soon. Um, He's been in there since September 5th for the bone marrow transplant. Looks like maybe if all goes well early next week, Charlie will be allowed to go home where he'll have to be under pretty constant care and return trips to Mayo for updates. But it looks like he might actually be allowed to... uh, head back to home rather than having to stay in the hospital. So fantastic news there. Long way to go, but well done, Charlie. It's uh, great to see you getting through this. Absolutely, and uh, you need to get that cub finished, mate. So uh, get back there in the shed and uh, you know get out of that hospital and uh, get back working on the cub. I could think of no better therapy. Well, I've I've already told him if if he gets that cub up and flying, I've got to come over and get myself over there so he can take me for a fly. That's it for shout-outs. Now, um, some sad news, guys, that we uh, came across uh, just recently. You may remember back to uh, episode 65 where we spoke to uh, Steve Ruffles out there at the Eagle School of Microlighting. That's in Port Punker up there in uh, northeastern Victoria. And uh, something we've known about for a while, but they didn't really want publicised. Uh, Steve was actually uh, going through a, a very intense struggle with uh, cancer. I believe he had some brain tumours they spread to his lungs. Sadly, unfortunately, he lost that fight last month and uh, he passed away peacefully. Steve Ruffles, uh, very well known in the hang gliding community in this part of the world and uh, had a very successful uh, school up there in Port Punka. So uh, our, uh, our sympathies certainly go out to his wife, uh, Lisa, and their family. And uh, there's a link there in the show notes. It's actually uh, been put up by the uh, Newcastle Hang Gliding Club that mentions a fund there. If you'd like to uh, support Lisa and the family, uh, there's a, a, bank, a BSB number and an account number there uh, that you could uh, make a donation. And I think that would be very worthy. They've uh, got a couple of uh, young kids there and uh, they're certainly going to uh, need a lot of support. 
Always a shame when we lose someone and uh, especially the fight to cancer. So uh, sad to hear that uh, Steve's passed away, but, uh, you know, at least everyone's got their memories and uh, he's out there soaring the ridge lift. You know that. Okay, well, on that sad note, Grant, I think it's about time we wrap the episode up. Another uh, fantastic episode. Damien, thanks again for uh, allowing us to uh, shoehorn you into becoming a part of the team here. Yeah, like I said earlier, Steve, and and to Grant and Ben and the others that are part of the team, it's my pleasure and it'll just be fulfilling for me to be able to give back to the, the podcast and the aviation community because it's been very re- rewarding for me listening to you guys over the past years and and, uh, and it'll be good to, to give to others. Hey, mate, uh, we'll have to get some more cockpit audio from you. We haven't had any for a while. I'll do that. I've actually, as part of my flight review this week, I have to fly into Sunshine Coast, so I'll run the tape and send something down to you so we can have a listen. Apparently, and, and Ben would be able to elaborate on this if time permits, the procedures have changed slightly with Class D airspace since I've last flown into it, specifically to do with departure reports, I think. So it'll be new for me. That'll be a good challenge for you. The last change I remember with D was when they took away the clearance thing. They simplified the departure report seed. Yeah. You, you don't have to right. do them when you're VFR my, or something? Yeah, to my understanding, VFR, you don't actually have to give a departure report. No. That's the big difference, whereas you used yeah. to have to give it. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just punch out and change frequencies or something. That's right. You don't, you don't have to give it unless you're um, departing into the... Into class, controlled airspace. Yeah, into the Charlie overhead, right. I think. And I'll be departing straight into Gulf. And uh, once again, ozflyboy.com, and uh, people should uh, get over there and have a look at uh, Damien's thoughts on aviation and uh, other subjects besides. And while we're on that, Steve, um, just another plug. I wanted to plug downwind.com.au. I think that it's gone a little bit quiet there over the past few months and I think it'd be great if the Australian aviation community got more involved in the forum there and in what's going on uh, with that uh, great Australian aviation website. We'll catch you again uh, soon Damien and uh, Ben where can we catch you online? I've actually changed my email address recently so it's... Uh, it's no, not a, again. It's a little bit shorter. It's uh, atcben at internode.on.net now and atc underscore ben on Twitter. And uh, speaking of cockpit audio I might be uh, testing out my new Lightspeed app that comes with my new headset. So Really? It, it comes with a recorder. Thanks for coming down to the uh, studio this evening and, uh, you know, we should offer another shout-out. Thanks for enjoying my wife's award-winning chocolate cake. You know, the other two guys missed out tonight. They certainly did. No, it's uh, award-winning for a reason, I tell you. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you, reckon, do you reckon a slice will survive the post? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> won't even make it into the envelope, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to get past those two to get anywhere near an envelope. But, uh, you know, I, I might take buds are crying but my uh, waistline is saying dodged a bullet on that one <laughs> absolutely all right grant back to the uh, ballooning office for you and we'll catch you in the next episode thanks mate yeah get back and shoulder to the grindstone and uh yeah back into it so just when i'm over a few humps thinking that's it i can cruise for a little bit no more humps along the way and still lots of work to be done it would appear thanks very much for listening folks as always we hope you enjoyed it don't forget you can catch us every week on the airplane geeks podcast with our australia desk report it's at airplanegeeks.com and you can find archives of those segments at australiadesk.net. Episode 96 is not far away. We've already recorded a uh, fantastic interview there with a former Royal Australian Air Force fighter pilot. Uh, I'll tell you what, uh, that's a fantastic interview. I've got to get into editing that one, but uh, boy, that'll be a corker. So that'll be out in a few weeks from there. But uh, I'll tell you what, until then, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. 
Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plaincrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Do you want me to mute myself out? No, no, it's okay. It's okay. Oh, only only if you're about to make noises like sneezing, burping, talking to someone. All right. No, hang on. If you if we have a that didn't mute moment, I mean, yeah, that'd well, be funny. no, that, I think it's yeah. been done. Yes, <laughs> it has been. I think done. there's t-shirts for that. See, this is where I go blank at this time of night. Um, Needs more chocolate cake, Steve. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, 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 we've got a chocolate emergency. Um, <laughs> <What's> that? <laughs> that's right. Um, no, I don't know. I'm not. A ta- I'm not a tower controller. Ball <laughs> <laughs> ball. Cla- class class D. What? Some sort of huge five liter Chevy. <laughs> Depends who's paying for the fuel, mate. Yeah. Well, if you lived in Arkansas, you wouldn't be game enough to drive that uh, that mini around. I'm just saying. Do we sound any more organised than the last time you came on the show, Damien? Probably not. That's about the same. <laughs> Nothing has changed. It's just it's just it's just that the editing becomes greater. Come on, mate. If we didn't give you any outtakes, what would you have to do? You might have spare time so, in so your get life. Get out into the daylight a bit more often. Yeah. So wasn't it during one of those particular parties that uh, you called us over here? That was the Firebase Airspeed, shall we say, housewarming. That was you, uh-huh. you and Tupper and Jack Hodgson, and I think there'd been uh, more than one. Uh, Jeremiah Weed was involved, and, <laughs> and that and that's where the comments will stop. Yeah, look, if I, if I wasn't driving, I would have gone and got the bottle out of the freezer over here, I tell you. Yes, it's... um. <laughs> I, I don't mind the taste of the stuff, but... Uh, I love it. Wow, it's got some kick. <laughs> well, it is 100 proof, you know. It tastes like 50% alcohol. It tastes <laughs> like paint thinner, anyway. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, I've since taken care of it, so there's going to be no number six, or if there is a number six, my wife and I are going to have a very long tour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, that'll be a cut point. <laughs> well, I'm just... Yeah, that's it. Uh, does she have a sister? She does, but she's happily married with five children, and he's also made sure there's not going to be a sixth. <laughs> Crikey. It must be something in the water up there in Brisbane, I'm saying. <laughs> oh, no, so it's just these, these two girls, mate. We, my brother-in-law and I would walk past them, and they'd fall pregnant. So, <laughs> I'll give you some, some listener feedback. Yeah. The episode can't go too long.
I understand you probably need to stretch the content, but I don't think you can make an episode that's too long. Uh, we have people who disagree with you, mate. Really? Steve, yeah. Steve's sitting here going, challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a seven-hour episode, no problem. <laughs> All right, the red light is on. Ah! Doot, doot. Warning, warning. Oh, I can do Steve's that. recording. <laughs> Steve's recording. Caution. <laughs> Anything you say can and very likely will be used against you. <laughs> Often three years later. <laughs>